oh man, it was just like one of those like life-altering experiences. I mean, I, I could never really look at the world the same way again after that. Yeah, but I mean, like, how did you how did you finally get out of the dream? See, that's my problem. I'm, I'm like, I'm trapped. I keep I keep thinking that I'm waking up, but I'm still in a dream. It seems like it's going on forever. I can't get out of it, and I want to wake up for real. How do you really wake up? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not very good at that anymore. But um, if that's what you're thinking, I mean, you you probably should. I mean, you know, if you can wake up, you should. Because, you know, someday, you know, you won't be able to. So just, um, but it's easy. You know, just, just wake up. Welcome. You're listening to the Waking Life Podcast, episode number two. You are another me and I am another you. As always, it's Cody, your guide on this audible odyssey. I've got to start out by expressing my immense gratitude for everybody who has reached out, friends old and new alike, to tell me that they listened to the first episode and they thoroughly enjoyed it. I consider anybody out there that listens to this podcast and truly resonates with the content to be a friend of mine because these are the subjects that I care about personally and I research for countless hours. So if I'm able to have conversations with people about these types of things, then I would be really happy because we'd be getting to the root of the issues, the heart of the matter. And that's where you can really affect the most change because if you're just dealing with the symptoms then you're never actually fixing the real issue. You're not fixing the real problem. And I'm done fixing the symptoms just for other symptoms to pop up in other places. Like, we need to fix what is the most wrong. And to me, it's that dichotomy between love and fear and how most people are coming from fear and we need to be coming from love. And as soon as you're able to do that, That's when the real revolution will occur, the revolution of consciousness. So if any of you out there have anything that you want to share with the entire world that you think truly matters, that you care about deeply, and that you just wish everybody would be able to try to understand because you feel like that understanding would help bring greater peace and love in this world, and you don't know how to contact me personally, send an email to wakinglifepodcast at gmail.com. The whole purpose of this is to expand the consciousness of as many people as possible, so I just really want to get together the most helpful information. I mean, even if it's just you ranting about things that you deeply care about, just send it to me. I'll sift through it, pick out what I think really resonates with me, and then together we can build a better podcast. The website, wakinglife.co, has garnered a lot of attention with little to no promotion on my end. The first episode, each person is an intricate piece of infinity, received over 500 downloads. I just, I can't believe it. Like, I'm so thankful that you are all out there embarking on this acoustical adventure with me. Three weeks ago, I started a Facebook page for the podcast to keep everyone up to date between episodes with only about $8 worth of advertisement. We nearly have 1,000 likes on the page, which is phenomenal. If you're on Facebook and you don't like the page already, might I suggest you go to facebook.com backslash wakinglifepodcast and give the page a like. Before delving into the contents of the podcast, I'd like to bring up a little personal anecdote. Just recently, I've decided to fully commit to a lifestyle change, and I just have to comment on the amount of change that I've seen outwardly as well. Whether it's been almost a week of paradisical weather, 
or the fact that every time I interact with any loved ones or friends that I'm able to cogently communicate exactly what I need to and to be able to enjoy ourselves and thoroughly enjoy life to its fullest. So it just goes to prove further to me that the law of correspondence is in effect and it's a beautiful thing once you realize that you can change yourself and then change the world all in the same aspect with the same actions. For anybody out there who hasn't felt what I call holotropic gnosis, the complete knowing of how we are all connected with everything, if you hadn't had the glorious chance to experience this truly, and you're wondering, like, how can I be you and you be me, or any of these kind of heady, weird topics you might hear people on the spiritual path talk about, then I have one of my favorite short stories I'm going to read for you after this monologue that I think will help you understand the concept without having experienced it personally. As you might have already saw, this podcast is quite lengthy, and actually this is kind of how I expect most of the podcasts to be. Um, Try to pack a lot of information together, and I know me personally, when I listen to things, even if I don't listen to it all in one listening session... I still look forward to coming back to it at different points and picking up where I left off. And the way the podcast is set up right now, it kind of lends to being able to do that. So uh, there will be a surprise waiting for any and all that can make it all the way through the podcast. So be on the lookout for that. Without any further ado, strap up your space boots, activate your pineal glands, because after we blast off, we're going to be internalizing some deep concepts. But have no fear. I trust you'll find some information you've been wanting your whole life, whether you've known it or not. Peace. The Egg by Andy Weir You were on your way home when you died. It was a car accident. Nothing particularly remarkable, but fatal nonetheless. You left behind a wife and two children. It was a painless death. The EMTs tried to save you, but to no avail. Your body was so utterly shattered you were better off, trust me. And that's when you met me. What what happened, you asked. Where am I? You died, I said, matter-of-factly. No point in mincing words. There was a... a truck, and it was skidding. Yup, I said. I... I died? Yup, but don't feel bad about it. Everyone dies, I said. You looked around. There was nothingness. Just you and me. What is this place, you asked? Is this the afterlife? More or less, I said. Are you God, you asked? Yep, I replied. I'm God. My kids. My wife, you said. What about them? Will they be alright? That's what I like to see, I said. You just died and your main concern is for your family? That's good stuff right there. You looked at me with fascination. To you, I didn't look like God. I just looked like some man, or possibly a woman. Some vague authority figure, maybe. More of a grammar school teacher than the Almighty. Don't worry, I said. They'll be fine. Your kids will remember you as perfect in every way. They didn't have time to grow contempt for you. Your wife will cry on the outside, but will be secretly relieved. To be fair, your marriage was falling apart. If it's any conclusion, she'll be very guilty for feeling relieved. Oh, you said. So what happens now? Do I go to heaven or hell or something? 
Neither, I said. You'll be reincarnated. Ah, you said. So the Hindus were right. All religions are right in their own way, I said. Walk with me. You followed along as we strode through the void. Where are we going? Nowhere in particular, I said. It's just nice to walk while we talk. So what's the point then, you asked? When I get reborn, I'll just be a blank slate, right? A baby, so all my experiences, everything I did in life won't matter. Not so, I said. You have within you all the knowledge and experiences of your past lives. You just don't remember them right now. I stopped walking and took you by the shoulders. Your soul is more magnificent, beautiful, and gigantic than you can possibly imagine. A human mind can only contain a fraction of what you are. It's like sticking your finger in the glass of water to see if it's hot or cold. You put a tiny part of yourself into the vessel, and when you bring it back out, you've gained all the experiences it had. You've been in a human for the last 48 years, so you haven't stretched out yet and felt the rest of your immense consciousness. If we hung out here for long enough, you'd start remembering everything, but there's no point to doing that between each life. How many times I've been reincarnated then? Oh, lots and lots, and into lots of different lives, I said. This time around, you'll be a Chinese peasant girl in 540 AD. Wait, what, you stammered? You're sending me back in time? Well, I guess technically... Time as you know it only exists in your universe. Things are different where I come from. Where you come from, you said? Oh, sure, I explained. I come from somewhere, somewhere else, and there are others like me. I know you'll want to know what it's like there, but honestly, you wouldn't understand. Oh, you said, a little let down. But wait, if I get reincarnated to other places in time, I could have interacted with myself at some point. Sure, happens all the time, and with both lives only aware of their own lifespan, you don't even know what's happening. So, what's the point of it all? Seriously, I asked? Seriously? You're asking me the meaning of life? Isn't that a little stereotypical? Well, isn't it a reasonable question, you persisted? I looked you in the eye. The meaning of life, the reason I made this whole universe, is for you to mature. You mean mankind. You want us all to mature? No, just you. I made this whole universe for you. With each new life, you grow and mature and become a larger and greater intellect. Just me? What about everyone else? There is no one else, I said. In this universe, there's just you and me. You stared blankly at me. But all the people on Earth. All you. Different incarnations of you. Wait. I'm everyone? Now you're getting it, I said, with a congratulatory slap on the back. I'm every human being who has ever lived, or who ever will live, yes. I'm Abraham Lincoln, and you're John Wilkes Booth, too, I added. I'm Hitler, you said appalled, and you're the millions he killed. I'm Jesus, and you're everyone who followed him. You fell silent. Every time you victimize someone, I said, you are victimizing yourself. Every act of kindness you've done, you've done to yourself. Every happy and sad moment ever experienced by any human was, or will be, was experienced by you. You thought for a long time. Why? You asked me. Why do all this? Because someday you will become like me. Because that's what you are. You're one of my kind. You're my child. Whoa, you said, incredulous. You mean, I'm a god? No, not yet. You're a fetus. You're still growing. Once you've lived every human life throughout all of time, you will have grown enough to be born. So the whole universe, you said, it's just... 
an egg, I answered. Now it's time for you to move on to your next life, and I sent you on your way. The universe and all, all consciousness is based on love. If it weren't for love, it wouldn't exist. Uh, it's also been deemed the logos or thought. It's this, whole, it's this whole creative aspect of consciousness. And the thing is that if, if we are going to go with the concept that there is one divine creator and then that creator has created everything, well, then that creator is everything and everything is the creator. And so if everything that exists is the creator, then that means that we are the creator. And that's, that's a very difficult concept for people fundamentally to wrap their heads around on this planet because people have been brainwashed with religion to think that God is something outside of themselves. And it's a separate entity which like controls their lives and basically decides what will or won't happen when really we as beings – all collectively decide what is to be through our through our actions. Yeah, and and Russell, for, and and to any of the the listeners, you know what Russell is saying, and what I'm sure we're going to get into tonight, if we're talking about nature of reality, we go down that path. It's going to sound a lot like we're speaking in riddles, you know, like all we are is a universe imagining itself as above, so below, as within, so without. You are the holographic projection of the universe. All this kind of stuff is speaking to different levels of reality. And I know in my own mystery school work, one of the major issues with communicating it, besides being able to meet everybody where they are in their understanding, is seeing how um, our language is extremely egocentric and the spiritual path is not. So we learn to hold space for multiple realities at once. So um, before we move forward, I'd just like to call out there's the linear uh, part of reality, which is the once you're born, you start dying. It's sort of like a move from uh, order to chaos, you know, uh, a cooling off, if you will. And then there's also the holographic nature of reality, which says, and, and that's what we're speaking of and what Russell was mentioning. That's the fact that um, uh, the universe can be seen as a metaphor. And that's the illusion, the, the illusion part of it. You know, if you see it as holographically, then there really are metaphors and um, everything that ever it was, is, and will be is right here, right now, except when you're looking at it from a linear perspective. So it, it'll seem a little bit like we're speaking in riddles, but in reality, we're just struggling to explain what's actually going on. Well, I think that's exactly right because, and you hit on a really pertinent point and, you know, one could say that life is a dream, you know, and that's, there's that, uh, you know, merrily, 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 life is but a dream that she'll, you know, row your boat, Right. It's in it's in the foundation of reality is that we have to question, well, what is reality? What are we actually experiencing? Like, who are we and what is this? What's actually really going on? And we can say on one level, well, what is the truth? But the truth is, like, that we are everything. And so if we're everything, then this experience is not fully who we are. And this is just a dream. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, too. You know, the, the psychedelic pursuit, which we're going to talk about, you know, uh, in regards to truth. Um, at first, we've got what I would consider like our programmed truth, our societally learned truth, you know, what we're told is the truth, you know, you know, be yourself, but don't be like that, you know, you know, follow your heart, but not like that kind of stuff, you know. And then when you start to explore psychedelics and you start to grow up, 
you start to realize that there's um, there, it's, it's relative. You know, truth is relative. And then when you go even further, you start to realize, oh, wait, no, there is an actual truth to all of this that's behind the veil. And that's what Dave was referring to in terms of the dreams and the DMT, all these kinds of stuff. You start to get a peek into the truth of, of, of really what's going on. You know, so all of those things are true, but there is a true true. Right. Well, the thing is that when you die, you experience truth because no matter what you uh, convinced yourself of in your life, you have to face yourself. You know, when you go through the tunnel, what you're really going through is your own. It's it's your soul going through its own self, essentially, and imploding through a black hole into another dimension of experience. And the thing is that dreams are real just like life is real. It's not that it's not real. It's just a different plane of existence where you can't die. It's just it's all a thought reality. And here this is a totally it's a physical reality. And so people think that this is real and that's not real, but thought is real. You know, because thought creates reality and reality creates thought. You know, obviously as you experience things it generates thoughts and your thoughts then go back and generate reality. And so this is the nature of how reality is experienced and created. Can I? I would relate the windows to my soul out of you. I see so much potential in us. I also see a universe inside of you. Even in my deepest meditations, I couldn't imagine these things until I met you on the astral plane. If I told you, I could give you life. I love and accept myself If I could you with all my faults, would you lose your face of being lost? You are special. You are special. Everything gonna be okay. I see the universe inside of you. Live alone. Can I make you feel okay? Would you let me take you to a higher place? No, 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 I bet you never know. There's a universe inside of you. Can I? you with infinite power at your blessed core you should experience profound well-being infinite living love and light you channel the power of the infinite you channel awesome power of the infinite you are infinite in every moment 
You are timeless. You are timeless. Timeless source renews the unique blessed soul within you. And eternal blessings meet you at the crossing of infinite awareness. You see infinite riches all around you. When you open your eyes, you see infinite riches all around you. As you are in touch with the infinite. As you breathe in infinite in every moment, realize that you are infinite being. The age of your body has no bearing on what you can do and who you are. You are from an infinite source. Therefore, you are created in infinite. Let this material world have no boundaries about you. You are not to live up to society standards. You are created as one. You are created in whole. You set standards of your life. All that you wish and dream to come true shall. Because your word is bond. Your word is life. Your word is love. Always love. Always love. Love in abundance. Love in abundance. Love in consciousness. In consciousness. Love in awareness. Love in infinite. In infinite. Love. Love. Can I take your pain and make it go away? What is true? Let me be your getaway. This also represents getting past all of the final things that bind us, that we may be holding ourselves back through. Not only understanding all of the things that have gone awry with the world in an external sense, but then working on ourselves in the, 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 the sense that we take care of all the little bits of ego that is still binding us and holding us back. Okay, so this is sometimes referred to as the Lodge of Perfection or the Illuminated Lodge. And when we get past those 13 final levels, and again, it's a symbolic number because 13 represents the sun plus the 12 houses of the zodiac, another number that is associated with light and the sun. Okay, we get past that 13th level of brick and we stand in the space. Okay, now this concept is easier to see if you look at the image without the square overlaid. So if we go back to image number one, we can look at the seal in the middle without anything overlaid on top of it. And we can see the space that exists between the brick and the light. Okay. Now this represents being out of the prison, but we don't identify with that all seeing eye because that would mean we think of ourselves as God. We stand under that all-seeing eye in a state of sovereignty. There is nothing between us and it. Okay, We stand alone atop 
the base consciousness that we have conquered, we have moved past, we have gotten outside the boundaries of, okay, until we are in that space, that wide open space, the widening, the broadening, okay, the awakened consciousness where we understand that we are sovereign, that there is nothing between us and the creator represented by the all-seeing eye itself, that we are sovereign under that and that alone. So that's what this symbol ultimately represents. This is some of the deeper aspects of it. And the final thing I'd like to bring up about this symbol is the concept of the stone the builders rejected when it relates to this. Because this is a concept of the capstone or chief cornerstone, also known as the pyramidion of a pyramid, the the top piece that completes the pyramid at the very apex. Okay? There are two stones that the builders reject. This is a term in masonry. Okay? A light mason rejects the dark stone and a dark mason rejects the light stone. So I will explain what I mean by this. Okay? As we saw in light Freemasonry, a true Freemason from an esoteric perspective is trying to build a world based in freedom. That's the end goal. Okay? Based in knowledge of oneself, which is light. Okay? Enlightenment, freedom, love. All right? In doing so, he wants to remove the stone, meaning ignorance and things that weigh us down, okay, to bring more light to the earth so that eventually the earth is completely enlightened, all right? The de-stoning, as we saw when we looked at Royal Arch Masonry, also represents the decalcification process as related to the pineal gland or the third eye or all-seeing eye within us in the center of the head and the human brain. So, the light mason rejects the stone, the chief cornerstone at the top of the pyramid of stone. That is the piece that needs to be added to block out the light. Okay? The light mason has a stone that he rejects. The stone those builders reject, okay, is the actual stone pyramidion that we see on the left-hand image here of the dark new world order. That capstone is put in place and blocks out the light from the world, the little that, that does remain, so that the dominate, male dominator world can be completed, the prison for souls. That is the stone that the light mason rejects. The stone the builders rejected. Okay? I have rejected that stone. And it will not be placed if I have anything to say about it and do about it. The dark masons conversely also reject a stone. The stone the builders rejected when you're referring to the dark builders is the light capstone that we see in the middle image there. The all-seeing eye, the light of the creator. They They reject that stone and want to get rid of it from the world so that they can complete their dark new world order project. So the, the seal completely makes sense. Anuit Coeptus, he or she favors our work, 
the New World Order? Well, which God are you serving? Which force are you serving? Are you serving the light or are you serving darkness? Are you serving the force of good or evil? Are you serving true freedom or do you want to enslave the world? Okay? And the God that you're serving, the force you're ultimately serving, certainly favors your work that you're doing, the building project you are undertaking to build the world that they want to see come to fruition. So this symbol represents all of us collectively as the builders of our world. Which force, which God do we serve? I'm comfortable with the word God. Which creative force do we serve? Which generative principle? Which form of service? Service to freedom and helping others and helping the world become enlightened, illuminated truly in truth or service to self where you only care about yourself and your own egoic needs in which case you're certainly help building that dark new world order. The force of fear is what wants to continue to live and be fed. Whether you look at that as something that is embodied in an actual consciousness of a, of a being or not, to tell you the truth, it doesn't matter. The game is the same. It's played the same way. It uses the same methodologies, whether it happens to be an extraterrestrial species, demonic entities, a, a non-corporeal force, or just humans living here on this planet. It doesn't matter who's at the top. All that matters is the ideology that they are promulgating and the methodologies of mind control that they are using to get us to go along with that agenda. We wake up to that, it's game over. We live, we find a live. This is the first episode or the first live chat from Uncommon Shamans. We got special guest, uh, Cambada in the building. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can y'all hear me? I don't know if we can see them. Can we see them? Can I see them? I see uh, you want to fill them in on why it took a little bit? You shooting a video right now. You want to fill yeah, in? I'm, uh, shooting, I'm shooting a video to the DMT <laughs> joint, to the DMT video. I don't know if you've heard it, but, you know, I'm sure if you're on this broadcast right now, you've heard DMT. You've heard what I'm doing with the uh, with the lyricism, um, and basically we're gonna bring it to your eyes visually, your ears, sonically at the same time via uh, motherfucking 4K video broadcast stream frequencies. You know, we use that magnetic static electricity, man. We bringing y'all plasma via plasma. You know what I mean? The blood, the sun, and the television screens made all out of the same crystalline gas. That's plasma, boy. You heard me? And that's where we bring in this video from, straight from the top. So do you want to get into uh, the whole what Smoke and Mirrors is about? Like, Because there's three tapes. or Is there four? It's four tapes, actually, right? That's what it's about. Murder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh... Started off with the porch. Let's give them some background on the porch because... That's where it all began. See the porch. I don't know how many of y'all, how many of y'all out there are familiar with house structure. Um, but generally, before you enter a house, a well-made house always has a entryway called a porch, which is the first piece of physical constructed property when you're entering the present. Pres- 
the premises before you get to that door that doth. You heard me? So hidden knowledge. The porch. It was my introduction to a fully screened in porch was done in Florida. Shout out, shout out to my girl Caitlin. Um, you know, we moved out to uh, Dunedin, Florida. And prior to this, I wasn't smoking no weed. I was about 23 years old. I was completely clean and sober up to this point. This is all post-Visionary 2. This is between Visionary 2 before the porch. I uh, moved out to Florida. I quit my job. I decided I'm going to um, dedicate my time to writing music and being creative. Prior to that, it was always kind of something I just did naturally and on the side. It was a hobby. But at 23, I started getting deep into the mental aspects, studying, getting in, getting into the uh, mind, body, soul, uh, knowledge of self. Uh, not really related to any religious structures, just real, really just getting in deep with nature. All the answers are within you if you have the right questions. So I, uh, this porch allowed me, uh, and I didn't start going on a porch until I started tr- uh, smoking weed because I wasn't allowed to smoke in the house, shout out to Caitlin. So it, 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 it forced me on that porch and it was desirable because it was screened in. So the bugs couldn't attack me. You know what I mean? There's a barrier, but still I get all the natural sun rays and the moonbeams. Um, I, I get the, uh, I get that clean oxygen. We're breathitary. Any, any hot shit out of us. Oh yeah. And, and somehow it, it, it enhances acoustics and it enhances the, 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 the weed smoke. It causes a centrifugal slight cyclone with the smoke in this porch. It causes a, a like a centrifuge in, 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 in this, this it causes a fusion of smoke and it stays there forever. So the more you smoke there, it builds up over time. Right now it's too potent. Regular humans can't sit on this porch. They'll die. They'll fold up. This was about 2010, right? This is about 2000. This is 2011, actually. April 2011, I started smoking out there. And um, I started just writing like crazy. It was like a new, new, I was newly rejuvenated. It gave me a new inspiration, a new motivation. So I just started creating. And I was like, it's only right. I called my first tape with the new Kambada smoking mirrors the porch and the smoking mirrors concept came from the fact that me collaborating with these herbals and smoking is the perfect mirror is self-reflection it allowed me to go internal go introverted and really dig deep on who i am and, and how the 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 internal relates to the external and and how my mind is translating this reality so the porch was the birth of that smoking mirrors. It's also the trick. It's also the uh, you know, the uh, the wizard behind the fucking curtain. You know, the Wizard of Oz shit. Like it reveals the truth. It's the it's what's behind the the magic trick. This grand illusion. Um, you know, I'm uncovering that throughout the entire uh, smoking mirrors series, uh, series. So it goes from the porch, um, and then from the porch I go to the womb. Which you go from the porch to the to the living room generally. A room is a womb. You heard me? It's the same thing. It's it's the womb is that little room in your mom that you came that you 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 came into physical existence. It's that portal hole, it's that stargate. And that's what the room is. The house is really constructed. Look at the construction, you know what I mean? The room is where you do your development mentally and physically. Uh, some people, it, it you know, that's where they 
you know, do all their sins. You know what I mean? You're fucking, you're eating, you're watching TV, so on and so forth. You're smoking that drug. Um, so it went from the porch to the womb to the crack baby. And this is the evolution. I'm getting more and more drugged out. Before you can get more and more conscious, sometimes you got to walk through the fire. This is the journey of Heru. We're all going through it. You know what I mean? So upon my journeys to the to the uh, to the uh, next level, I have to first go back. I have to dig deep on who I am. I can't just go from opening my eyes to being God. You know what I mean? I have to then retract retrospectively, look at the makings of me. I have to back to the womb. This is discovery. This is detective work. Then from the womb, I go to the, the crack baby. Then from the crack baby, we go to DMT, which is the epicenter, which is which is the motivating factor here, the, the dimethyltryptamine that's uh, uh, natural to everybody's brain, their pineal glands, that third eye that everybody wants to talk about. Oh, it's so cool to talk about third eyes. Do you know what? Do you know what's in the third eye? Do you not activate it? Have you smoked it? Have you talked to God, or talked to whatever representative is there? mathematically geometrically because it's not something physical it's an algorithm you know i mean it presents itself in many visual and sonic waves particles everything is this is that and it's everything in between yeah i forgot to introduce myself my name's mp by the way (laughs) (laughs) i uh we started uncommon shamans actually on the same porch he's talking about and um I would say it, 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 it was about 2011 and let, uh, let's let them kind of know what, what, what we did on the porch. I mean, it was, it was a consecutive, what, like couple months where we were smoking it, four, like eight blunts, I think a day for yeah. like, like at least four days out of the week, probably right? getting together, having highly, highly intriguing and, and, and very deep philosophical talks about metaphysics, the origin of man, consciousness, etc. And the entire time, there's not a moment that goes by conversationally that we don't have one of these bad suckers lit up. So we were going through anywhere from 8 to 14 blunts a night, no exaggeration, no hyperbole. Um, as, as well as it went from the marijuana to the mushrooms to LSD to the, to the DMT. To let's the- wait on that a little bit. Let's wait mm-hmm. on that. Let's tell them that like... On the porch, we were going from the darkness to the light. There was a lot because when we are when we weren't on the porch, all of us as a group, we were all in isolation pretty much mm-hmm. like a long time. And in isolation is where you're really going to find your genius, genius levels. And um, we, we were basically we went through a lot of traumatic experiences on the porch and in regular. So it was really going to the darkness to the light. Because we were, yeah. we have to go to the underworld first, pretty much. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you should we, you do you want to? I there's a the shamans use ikarus for when they're uh, doing ayahuasca. It's ayahuasca ayahuasca song. They're using ikarus, which is like the spirit of either the plant. They're bringing in the spirit of animals, elements, and they're using it for healing and protection. So, what would you say? the whole trilogy is smoke and mirrors. How do you, how do you feel that, like, what were you channeling and how do you feel? Cause it, remember we would, we would sit on the porch and wonder, is, is this music, are people, are people going to get it? I remember we wondered that yeah. for the longest time. We were like, are people going to understand mm-hmm. this? Are they going to get it? And we yeah. were just like, we don't know what's going on. We're caught up in the moment. So 
And now you've we, we've witnessed it that a lot of these songs have been really impacting people, healing people. So did you go into it? I guess just give a little bit about, I know, but let's give a little bit to the audience about how you were using channeling and how you went about these songs brought healings for yourself and how they're actually healing other people. And was there an intention? What's the intention behind the music? <clears throat> I mean, there's, there's, there's many, many, many layers. Um, it's, it, it, it all takes place in, in that imagine, imagination realm before it's manifested. It's incubated in the mind for months, months, months prior. And um, these chants, these words, these rhymes, these melodies, these harmonies, this is all algorithm. This is all coding. This is all very, very deep language, and it's multi-layered. So it's not just words, because words are just conduits of, of thought which are which appear in your mind as sound and visual right from there below that is emotion uh you know which directly responds with the spirit in the heart so beyond before the words even get involved it's the feeling it's the feeling that i get when i hear the music um from there upon being in a in a, a meditation induced trance this possession allows you to coagulate and to dance with the rhythms you're hearing assuming that you already have an instrumental in mind so as i'm listening to this music i'm able to dance with it and all of a sudden the the melody starts to happen and it, it starts to creep in first as an emotional thing I, I i start to feel it i feel the color i see the color i hear the color the, the motion, you know, uh, the retrospective memories it brings back to me from childhood, or maybe it'll bring me to the future or the present. From there, I start to develop the dialogue based on the sounds I get. So maybe it's not a visual, maybe the sound, the uh or the ah, will determine the word that I use in place of those sounds. So a ooh and a ah could be boot or a car or shoot like a star or do what you are. So even though it has these words which unlock these visuals, it also comes from a ooh or a ah, which are, which are sounds that are attached to feeling and response. So we're, we're working on two different levels here. From there, once you start to unlock the words and the mathematics of what I'm doing with these words, remember... When you're listening to Cambada music, you have to understand that these letters are not just letters, they're also numbers. So you are listening to highly developed arithmetic and pattern here. Sequences. And um, most of them are perfectly balanced, like a polarity. So you're getting... And the way that the way that translates in, in layman's is, you know, how when you're digging through philosophy and you'll find, you know, something that Gandhi will say, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. There's a reason mathematically in your head why that's such a satisfying statement and why it connects with everyone and why it's so holistic in nature. You could write a whole book off just that one statement. Now, imagine if in modern times we can get a mind that can do that consecutively throughout it song paired with melody emotion and just the overall mathematics of what music brings to the mind you're now talking about a triple double cheeseburger 
of metaphysics and philosophy here, depending on who the speaker is. In my case, I'm a human being that's been through a lot, and I come through a genetic line of old, old, old spirits that have been through a lot, and I have very deep connections with nature and uh, high dark magic, light magic, um, on both sides of my family. So the threading came prior to my my manifestation in the physical realm. Uh, most of us listening are, are, are endowed with these same kind of gifts and abilities. If you weren't, we wouldn't be attracted to the same kind of uh, things, shamanism, etc. Um, my fucking charger is so bad. This shit is like dying as I'm talking. Yeah, I had to get like three new chargers for the iPhone. They break so quick. Yeah, I think something's happening in the retrograde. Like, yeah, you know, it is going on right, is now, right It's always but something. But to get back into what you're saying and how this works for shamanism is I'm coming from such a deep place when I'm recording these these vocals that when you hear them, whether you listen to them deeply or you just listen to them lightly, it's going to connect with something in you subconsciously and sub and consciously, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, so whether I was feeling pain or happiness or abundance, you're going to understand that whether you do or you don't. You know, and um, that's the importance of music, and that's why it's so heavy. All music does this, whether it's good or bad, whether it's Chief Keef or it's the Beatles. There is a repetitious uh, mantra that is happening that you are recording in your mind, whether you want to or not. Just hearing it or not puts you under the spell. Whether you hear it or you don't, you are being hypnotized. Uh, it, it, even through the vibrations, it happens to deaf people. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Mm -hmm. You're gonna get. You're gonna get the even a even a quadriplegic, deaf, dumb, and blind person. That's just a suspended piece of consciousness. Is gonna get some effect Helen from Keller, the music. Even Helen Keller. Helen Keller will get an effect from the music because music is is represented on all dimensions simultaneously. At the same time, it is all is represented in every form. Sound. It's it's light. It's Water is everything. It's every everything involved. If to a deaf man or a blind to a blind man, a car whizzing by is the speed of sound. To a blind man, a car whizzing by is the speed of light. Would you agree with this? I think um, from 2011 to 2015 is like really the porch sessions. Then you you recently moved to New York, so the porch sessions are kind of dwindled down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um. Would you say that, and even this goes with the learning process too, that at first it was all intellectual, and then even your music, I mean, it's still intellectual, obviously, but it, it started off with you write it, you write it, and you, know, you, you write a song. Now, once you get that knowing, I think it's all about, it's about a, a knowing, because after yeah. a, it, it, <laughs> intellectual thought is, they say, it's, it's not even, it's more about having the, the, the knowing. And I would say that now you freestyle off the top, you, you, uh, you microdose on shrooms a little bit and you've been practicing your freestyling. And even just now with the bars, I heard, um, uh, I think it was Red Pill talking about how what you taught him in the studio about just coming from the emotion with just four bars. Now it comes from a state of knowing instead of just trying to be intellectual. You're not writing these songs. Now it's just, it's coming straight from the heart because now you have the knowing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, there's, there's different types of writing. There's different types of uh, 
expression all wrapped inside of what I do. And I've been more and more attracted, especially after move, moving to New York. It's not as uh, slow. It's not a, as it's not. It's so fast. The frequency is so high. It's so uh, tied to, to monetization and consumerism that there's no time for you to sit down and fucking write all day. That's why people like Jay-Z develop these uh, mental writing abilities. Um, so it's a little bit of that. And it's also a, a, just a lifetime of building a word bank and vernacular that any word I hear, I can immediate, I have, I have a media access to 11 or 12 words that rhyme with it off top. So it, it makes it so that way when I'm in the mode of songwriting, I can then just go from a, go from a melodic standpoint rather than a lyrical stat, standpoint, because when you have the ability to express yourself complex in, in, in complex ways, you tend to want to do it all the time. Sometimes the best way to relay a message is in the smallest package possible. And once you've mastered uh, wordplay and, and, and linguistics, then you can kind of fall back on it because it, it's so innate at that point that you don't have to put any effort into it. So uh, just like talking right now, I'm not really pre-thinking the words. It's a free flow based on what I what I'm getting to. I see the end of the road. And the words fulfill all potential on the way there in real time. That's what speaking is. So you can, you can say, hey, Bill, what's up, man? You're going to the market today? Yes, uh, eat some cotton candy. Oh, eat the beans. No, not the beans. Yes, man. Go to the bathroom. No. I could just say all of that shit. And that's freestyle. Difference is in rapping, you just rhyme. So it's like line, time, wine, 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 high, high. You know what I mean? So it's like same shit as just talking but rhyming instead. But what what you're doing, what they're doing with the song right now is they're just kind of just throwing out phrases. Some of them are nonsensical, some of them are, and a lot of it takes place place in post production. You know, you have a guy going a song and freestyle 190 straight bars, and then the engineer and producer will just cut up segments of that, repeat certain parts for the hook and other parts for the verses, and kind of staple it together. Especially if you stay in the same pocket of rhyme scheme. You were telling me now you could see the word when you see words now you could see them backwards, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it it, it goes it goes deep, man. You going you going you going a little too deep in the Pandora's box, man. <laughs> you going too deep, yeah. Well, that that comes from I some, think the knowing. Yeah, it's it's on some Da Vinci shit, man. and that's not you know I don't I don't even have a horn to toot, no homo. You it's, know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just realm of intelligence that that creates own. Exactly. And, and all the high level rhymers can do it. These rhymers, even no matter where they're from, ghetto, uh, you know, the suburbs, what they're doing is a high intellectual skill. This lyricism, this rap thing. It's uh, and on the highest, highest ranks, when you get into the M&Ms, the ASAP Rocks, um, the ASAP Rocks, uh, the uh, you know, all the dope people, you know, Jay, Big Pond, all the all the out these people are speaking in a high mathematical language that's what's happening all of these guys if you weigh their fucking iqs they're, they're all in the high 130s 140s these are all mathematical geniuses whether they know it or not a lot of the school doesn't do a good job at, at at measuring intelligence at all actually they do a terrible job at it they just try to uniform us and give us this information and they try to uh you know kind of 
make us into employees. That's it. You're just good at memorization and shit. Doesn't really poke into the to what true intelligence is and true because well, it's creativity. It's building bridges between obscurities. That's really what we're doing here. It's pattern recognition. What you what you said picking up patterns. The, well, the in, information broke the word down a little bit. I remember we always used to talk about the kid when the when it got like a when you're a little kid, they have you line up outside the classroom, everybody standing in line, and the one kid that jumped out of line and acted crazy is always one like, oh, he's a bad kid. But we would always be like, that's the kid that understood that this shit is bullshit. He's yeah, the one that yeah, these are the people that are able to. These are the fish that know they're in a tank. You know what I mean? Like the rest of the people are like, hey man, get back in line. What are these are like the sheep? He's like, bro, like. Look at the rest of this fucking world. I'm a human being, no different than that teacher. Only thing that separates me and her is her body is more matured and developed in the third dimension. But my stream of consciousness may actually be older and more informed than hers. So there's a lot of children that have, have problems with this. And it's, it, 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 so those become the rebels, the potheads, the true intelligent creatives. <laughs> you know they try I mean? to the rest of them are just good at taking them. orders. So normally just try to drug those kids up though and just try and stop that thought. Yeah. Because nowadays you're trying to kill trying to kill the imagination. Basically. Basically. Here's because, a quote. Because with the imagination you cause a magi nation. A nation of magic people. And that's that's they don't that those people are impossible to contain. You know, it's it's you know, you find you you just like a fucking, you have a bunch of pit bulls in your house. You're going to train them to listen to you. You're going to put them on an eating schedule. You're only going to let them out the house at a certain time. You know, it's all good until they do something bad, until they're barking a little too loud. Then you got to smack them in the head with a newspaper. You know what I mean? It's the same thing. There's humans that see us humans as less humans, you know, and they, they you know, what I'm doing is okay because at the end of the day, it's like, I'm the slave in the field tap dancing. So the master can be like, oh, look at him. Oh, he's saying some riveting things. Oh, don't worry. They're just going to think it's conspiracy and think he's a crazy guy. Let him go. The episode of Black Mirror, when he finally tells the truth about everything, they just give him his own show. They say, ain't nothing going to change. Yep, that's it. That's, and you ruined concerts for me by saying that about you. We just on stage tap dancing. That's why I was like, I can't even do this no more. Or you're like at a, at a, at a church Create a worship in the person on stage. It's a worship service. It absolutely is. It is to me. I have a quote. It's better to be the be the preacher than it is to be the motherfucking congregation. No disrespect. You need the congregation. Being in, but it's in hopes that those congregation members eventually start their own churches. You see, that's the difference between the people in in in, in that come see a Cambada show and the people that go see anyone else's show except people that are affiliated well by camp out of course. Is that yeah, the, the people in the crowd are looking for there these are these are masters. These are these are high level shaman in the crowd. If you speak this language, you understand this language, you are of the same nation. You are of the same heritage. You speak this language, you understand what I'm talking about, then 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 you belong there. You are not a slave, you are not a congregation member. You are a shaman listening to another shaman so you can speak to more shaman. That's it. You know what I mean? We get too wrapped up in, in, in letting the preacher talk for you. That's, that's not what's happening. You know, 
I'm 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 reflecting and I'm reflecting the algorithms to you what I found in my in my in my studies and I'm giving them to you so then you can you can use them for your own you know I have a quote here that I want you to uh, listen to and then see how it affected you in your life. It says, it's very important to understand that how you say things has power. One's intention and how one says it. What's behind the intention and the faith one has in the intention. All these things contribute to the healing. And if you have faith and you want to heal somebody, and if your intention is clear, pure, and clean, then even just a cup of water can heal. Mm. Mm. And do you think how what what way you the way you have we've been having people react to what you know everything that you've started everything that we've started together how it's really helping people? I think it's because you, when I know from being with you on the porch that your intention your intention has always been you know, clean, humble, pure, and you're, you're doing this, you're making music, not because you want money, not because of any of this stuff. You're making music because you love making music and, and, and it, you just feel like it's something that you were gifted with being able to do. I remember you told me after one trip, you said mm-hmm. that they uh, told you this is your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, in that movie, uh, Space Jam, when they're losing the game, and I think it was Bugs Bunny, he writes on the bat with the bottle of regular water, Mike's Magic Water. And everyone looks up to Michael J- Jordan so much that when they drink the water, the placebo effect kicks in, and their bodies start allowing them to do superhuman feats. And it's no different than that in real life. I remember, you know, if you're a little kid, you throw in that Superman cape. You start running around the house, you think you could jump off the bunk bed. You know, or or you watch that and one tape, you go outside, you grab that basketball, all of a sudden you hot sauce. What's up? You feel me? So it's the same thing with this music, man. Um, you know, people can sense the creativity, the purity in the creativity, the the uh the uh innocence in it. Um and they can connect it with their body. The brain rules everything. That's why placebo is so effective because if I say right now, think of an apple, you can think of an apple. So that more intensified is even more powerful. You know, if, 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 if you're dying of cancer and I give you a series of sugar pills and tell you this is the miracle cure that's been curing people far and wide, you might wake up the next morning feeling better because you told your brain you were cured. And that's all it is. That's all ritual is. It's a series of events that further convince you beyond doubt that something is happening. And that's all anything is. That's why you're able to recreate environments in your brain when you dream or daydream. Your mind has the power to do it all. So, yeah, like humans are so smart and so intellectual and so on point that it takes a lot to fully convince you, especially as you, you become older. As a child, it's a lot easier. You're, you're a blank canvas. So if I tell a child, yo, you're, you're, you're a big dinosaur, he's going to be like, ah, you know what I mean? Like, it takes nothing. But an adult, it takes a little bit more because we've seen more. Our experiences have taken us further. We've seen the behind the scenes on too many magic tricks to, to be impressed by the card tricks. 
So it takes more to impress a human being with these uh, a grown human being. So you know, it takes an artist, it takes music to create a vicarious experience for you. So when you listen to it, you see yourself saying it. So by me saying I'm God or I'm the best, it's only narcissistic if you're looking at it from an external that's him point of view. But people who listen to Cambada realize that by you repeating, I am the best, I am God, I am this, you're endowing yourself with the confidence to move through all. That's why it's so powerful on a placebo level and on a literal level. Maybe go through some of your stories and uh, your experiences on the porch psychedelically, uh, literally. Like The porch was so powerful, we didn't even have to take shrooms or anything. We could go on a long walk in nature and, and start um, start start speaking to plants. And I mean, it's real. It's real. You know, it, it really is. Magic exists. It's only until the God figures out the mathematic behind the magic that it ceases to astonish. But that's because we're God, not because it's, it's, it's not magic. You see what I'm saying? Like, and if you ever, if anybody has seen the movie Hook by... Uh with Robin Williams, it's by Steven Spielberg. He, 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 Robin's character is, he's become an older man and he's, he's fighting with his son. He's telling his, his son to, you know, he's telling his son, grow up, stop acting like a child. And, um, he has lost a sense of his imagination. They, uh, the, his grand, I think it's granny Wendy. She sells, tells him like, she says, Peter, don't you remember who you are? And um, she's saying this because once he starts to remember who he, are, who he is again, you know, you see, he's, he goes and he starts to be able to fly again. He starts to be able to do these things again. And um, he starts, when he goes to Never Neverland, he, he, he finds his magic again. And he had lost that because he, he, he stopped using his imagination. And that's what's going on nowadays. Like when every, every person in Silicon Valley, you got Steve Jobs, all these high tech people, have been um they don't let their kids use these iPads. These iPads and all, all the all this technology is taking away the imagination from 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 people and children because now you're seeing things in a three-dimensional uh three-dimensional form. You're not experiencing the actual physical the physical effects of it. You're only using your one sense which is seeing. And when you lose this imagination everything starts to pretty much go. It's when you pretty much become, you know, just another, another person. I go, I go to work every day. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of people that are viewing this are probably the type of people that we know that things are possible. You know, we know that everything is possible, but when, when you lose this imagination, you start to realize, Oh, I can't do these things. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm back in the building like athletic children's don't ask me for millions. Boy, I'm black and resilient. You heard me? That was weird. I had to try and freestyle real quick. I didn't know where to go. Freestyle, man. I'm worth like 3000 I get rid of beef like slaughtering, slaughtering three cows. You Even though I, I studied with Cam a lot, he's definitely a better freestyle freestyler than me, for sure. So, but I was, was going to talk about the porch and the psychedelic use on the porch, but I wanted to start with marijuana first because I think marijuana is like extremely abused. And I want to talk about the problem that we've figured out how to use marijuana and how it could be just as powerful as a psychedelic trip. Yeah, you want me to go into that? 
Yeah. Yeah. So basically, marijuana, man, it's it's, it's a it's a light psychedelic that is overused. I'm trying to find the best vantage point. So the light of the the star of David doesn't halo my face. Then we can get into this glory. Uh, you can see me. I'm on or not like a cosmonaut. You heard me? Uh, yeah, I think I'm better now. Um, so basically, marijuana cannabis is a light psychoactive, I'll say a psychedelic. Um, it's just that because it's light, because of its effects physically and mentally, it's kind of abused. I know I, I abused that motherfucker well. So basically, there's ways to capitalize on marijuana in a way that you can use even a couple hits and be able to really tap into a psychedelic place with more conscious control than you could with something that's as powerful as mushrooms or, or LSD. So, for example, one of the methods I would use is to put myself into, first of all, you clean up your diet and you stop smoking for maybe a week. Kind of get as much of it out of your system as you can. The longer you get off of it, the better it works. So you get off the weed, you clean up your diet, uh, drink a lot of water, get a lot of sun, um, kind of renew your body, get it back to baby shape. You want your body as fresh as it was when you were that, that, that little, that little toddler, you heard me? So you get your body right. You get your mind right. Um, you detox and then you pick a night, you get the strongest marijuana or even better if you got some dabs or something and, um, you get into complete darkness, maybe at nighttime, um, get into complete darkness and before you even start smoking, you want to get into a meditative state. You want to, I use uh, binaural beats inside of some headphones to kind of put myself into a, uh, a kind of a loose, uh, free state, uh, clean state, a very meditative state or open state, calm my body, get my heart rate down, um, you know, take some deep breaths, get the oxygen, feel good in my body. And then you start to ingest the marijuana and you're going with intention, you know, to 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 do something, you know, maybe maybe you just want to find some, uh, you know, some euphoric relaxation. Maybe you want to go in and, you know, talk to a dead relative or communicate or try to find some answers, whatever it may be. If you pair the meditative zone with complete darkness in something like marijuana, you can start to manifest the deepest kind of trances. You know, I've, I've done it and scared myself. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it can be real powerful, marijuana. It's just that, when you know, when you're smoking socially, you build up that tolerance. It's hard to get there, you know, um, because it does have a, has, has a ceiling, has a threshold. You can't get so high. You know, you're not going to get to that shroom level. You're not going to get to that DMT level or marijuana, but you can get into a, a very lucid meditative astral state, you know, um, to answer your question, of course. Did uh, you want to go into the dates you have right now booked or do you know them off yeah, the top of your head? Yeah, man. Um, yo, shout out, to covered again at the end. shout out to A. Shout out to A. Wake. Shout out to, uh, shout out to uh, Joe Show, Sensi Star, Battle Axe. Um, May 8th, I'll be in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, May 13th, I'll be in Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
uh, on the 19th, shout out to Rand Thomas. I'll be in uh, New Jersey. Of course, all the specifics will be on my social networks, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Cambada.com, etc. Um, after the 19th, we got the 20th in Staten Island. Uh, Staten Island. Um, then after that, uh, we got Brooklyn and on the 29th, we got some other dates, man. There's it, so many dates. There's it, so many venues. There's, there's, there's so many shows, so many microphones that you just got to keep your eyes peeled to the, uh, to the, to the social network organizations that are affiliated with that name. One more question. Uh, and then, well, we got some more, but I'm one more for right now. It's a uh, best advice for new artists. Best advice for new artists. First of all, first of all, you have to make it up in your mind that you're willing to do this until you die. Straight to the point. Like Jordan and Kobe, pretty much when they play ball. Well, we, we've talked about that before. Jordan, get rid of the fear of death. There's no plan B. Get that yeah. Every dollar, every moment in time, every interaction, every relationship should be rap centric. Um, once you have established a pseudonym or a name for yourself, that's who you are. 24-7. Now Second you're, idea. You know, there's, 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 because this is, we are, this is serious now. We're in 2016. Gotta wake up. The word is not the thing. The map is not the territory. And true enlightenment is the realization of the difference, that the map is not the territory. To be enlightened is to be awakened. That's all it is, simply put, to be awakened. Be awakened to what? To be awakened to the truth. The truth of what? Well, there's the three great truths. Who am I? Where did I come from? That's the quest of every individual, of course, from cradle to grave. But there's also the greater truths of a culture, a people, an ethne, a society, if you will. And the truths of the audacity of a government to subject the society and subvert the mass consciousness of a society into what we would consider false realities created by orchestrated events. Are we living in false realities created by orchestrated events that is the question i'm nurturing my inner howard beale and I'm, as you might understand i might might suppose or expect i am mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore this culture this world we're living in i want you to think about a couple of principles when we talk tonight you know there's one fundamental attitude of the outsider this non-acceptance of life and not life as in hatred of life but non-acceptance of the human life lived by human beings in human society such a life, the outsider would say, is a delusion or a dream. It is not real. And what a life is led by the outsider in a world in which he feels like the world is a delusion or a dream. Another principle I want us all to consider and keep in mind is the mark of an educated man or an educated woman. The mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. You don't have to act. This is the words of Aristotle. The Aristotelian approach to wisdom and truth and understanding is you don't have to believe or necessarily agree or under, you know, with a thought or a premise or an idea to learn from it. That's what I consider my great strength in reasoning in, in critical thinking is the ability to do just that, to entertain lots of thoughts and ideas that I may not agree with, 
but can still recognize the validity of entertaining the thoughts or examining the thoughts and ideas in order to gain greater understanding as a whole, to gain greater wisdom about the situation. The collective mass consciousness of postmodern America, probably the only authentic forum left, really, for individuals, not unlike the pamphleteers, to freely exchange ideas, to redress the government with their grievances, uh, redress the society as a whole. Because, in fact, don't we all feel as if we're being steered in the wrong direction? Like I said, with only two candidates to choose from and in what seems to be a compromised political system, Democratic or Republican, <laughs> I mean, both bought and paid for by the corporations, where are they leading us? Into perpetual war? Into the perpetual destruction of the environment? in the perpetual dehumanization of corporate America in general, the fascist mind control that goes on in everyday life, as people are conditioned. I mean, I, like I said, I work side by side with other working class folk in America, and everyone is conditioned to be dehumanized or to be disrespected or, or otherwise feel as if there is no real purpose to what they do. Like you're on a hamster wheel spinning every day, on a hamster wheel that somehow you lose, you lose ground <laughs> and you don't ever gain ground. You don't even tread the same exact spot. You lose ground and <laughs> everyone is, is slowly losing ground as they appear or seem to get the, the vague sense of moving forward, forward in some manner. But as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to talk a little bit about the outsider. You know, I've, I've been reading Colin Wilson's book, The Outsider, which, again, I highly recommend this book. It's, uh, it's really just uh, great stuff, a uh, study of Western literature and Western thought and uh, the Western discursive condition, <laughs> as, as it were. Discursive uh, means uh, discourse, you know, the idea of the revelation of knowledge through discourse. That's, that's the Western way, it seems. And uh, so... Anyways, I've been an outsider myself my entire life. I'm from, from childhood, uh, my, my schooling ordeals, as I call them, all the way to young adulthood, and then right down to today. You know, the, the fundamental attitude of the outsider has always been a part of my psyche. And, and, and when I say the schooling ordeals, I've, I've talked about it a lot in the past, uh, just how the process of, of what going through school and it being really just an elaborate obedience training system and I somehow being aware of that at a very young age I'm not quite sure why I was awakened to this I mean I felt a lot like the little kid in the emperor wears no clothes a lot in my life and then later on I felt a lot like that character Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye not because my parents were necessarily wealthy they, they weren't wealthy people but we lived in an area that was in a close proximity to wealth and it sort of trickled down, you know. So in many ways, uh, I was, you know, I too was at war with the society of my parents and all the schools, public and private, that I was either expelled from or asked not to return to. That happened quite often in my upbringing. And it was mostly because I, I questioned the authority in the room and I questioned the curriculum. I, I contradicted the teachers. I realized right away 
that they were everyone was it's this elaborate fraud going on that's why the emperor wears no clothes is such a great analogy because if you remember in that story i think it was hans christian anderson that wrote it first i'm not mistaken maybe uh, same with uh pied piper i believe but anyways in that story uh the the characters are all kind of caught up in this thing they're going along with it they're going through the motions but the boy he sees right through it you know he sees the stark truth staring everyone in the face but everyone's too afraid to acknowledge the truth uh it's staring them all right in the face to the point where the emperor is marching down the main street completely stark naked no one's willing to acknowledge the fact that he's been had by a con man who sold him supposedly the most fabulous invisible uh, material and threads you know and there's there's, all, there's much more to the story than this but i just wanted to point out the idea that this is a great analogy because that's how i felt growing up it was like the kid that that could see clearly and yet uh you know, no one else was either privy to it or they were ignoring it. They were just going along with it. And my peers, I suffered great, greatly, suffered greatly psychically and socially because not only was I ostracized by my peers, but the teachers, because they felt threatened by me challenging the curriculum and, and that the fraud, remember that fraud mentality I was talking about? I found the same thing within the lodge system in many ways, that people were just going through the motions and following the lesson plan or the teacher's manual without truly knowing the knowledge and wisdom they were speaking of. They had not taken this stuff on board, but they were speaking with the authority of the textbook, the authority of the system behind them. And that was fraudulent to me. I could not accept this because I, I think that that wasn't true knowledge. And I, I didn't know then what I learned later that, you know, real knowledge. <clears throat> well, let's not just say let's not say real knowledge. But let's just say that education or learning before compulsion schooling happened in America was based more on literature. It was literature fueled and literature focused knowledge. And uh, uh, it's, it's more... Uh, you know, it's it, it, so instead of being uh, based on the authority of the teacher's manual and abridged, simplified, probably slanted curriculum, you'd have the individual review the works and then gain insight on their own, uh, formulate their own independent thinking after being trained in the, the skills of, you know, like we've heard before, uh, the trivium or, or logic, reasoning, uh, rhetoric, grammar, these things that are, are necessary to, to process the great works of literature, for example, or philosophical material or scientific material, and then, you know, formulate your own opinions. But I think what we find in public schooling today and mainstream public schooling especially, and even in private schooling, if it's, you know, because there's charter schools and other private schools that are following the same lesson plans and the same basic playbook, which is to not produce critical thinkers in our culture, in our society, but to produce, in fact, obedient workers, you know, drones, uh, industrial workers, soldiers. So for me, it's, uh, it's always been clear, even before I understood how, the hows and whys of it, it's always been clear that there was a, a, a fundamental non-acceptance within me of life. And not life in the sense of, you know, the fundamental non-acceptance of life, as in, I hate life. No, that's not what we're speaking of here. What we're speaking of is the fundamental non-acceptance of human life lived by humans in human societies, right? 
such a life is not real for the intellectual outsider. The effects of living as an outsider in this manner at odds or living out of context with life can be extremely demoralizing. And in this realm of seekers of truth and the blog spheres and the podcasters today and all the postmodern conspiracy researchers and speculators and everything going on out there, we, we, we find, in, in fact, the, the constant uh, dialogue being expressed by people who have devoted their lives to seeking truth, people who have devoted their lives to considering things outside the box, to, to you know, pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake, to pursue art for art's sake. We find more and more reports coming back to us constantly about how people struggle materially, how they struggle financially, how they struggle emotionally, how they struggle in relationships, how they struggle, 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 hardship, struggle. Because in our world, it seems like everything is geared against the, the pursuits of, of uh, excellence, per se, uh, intellectual excellence, moral excellence, these things, uh, or artistic excellence, if you will. These things are uh, anathema to the pursuit of happiness as classified in our progressive modern world, which is, in fact, as we know, the pursuit of, of money, right? Pursuit of material security. And we also know that materialism always wins out, right? <laughs> it always wins. That's how come it was so easy to marginalize me in the lodge systems, ladies and gentlemen, because I, whenever I'd speak about a thing, you know, you could, yeah, listen to me, right? So the average, the average, American Freemason neophyte coming into a lodge, right? He looks at me. I am. Uh, I'm a wage slave. I'm a worker. I'm a. I'm a worker drone. I, I'm. I'm a proletariat. I'm a. You know, another guy struggling every day. If I can't get up and go out to work, I'm in financial ruin. So I'm just a, a series, a few, a few unfortunate events, a series of unfortunate events away from total financial ruin. That's how tenuous my material existence is most of the time. So if I speak about all these eternal truths and all this ancient and forbidden knowledge and all this stuff to a neophyte, right? But at the end of the day, if you, if you do as I do, you get what I get, right? It'd be easy to attack me. I'm an easy target to anyone who is coming from a materialist point of view because I am not financially successful. And, you know, in order to remain uh, legitimate or have credibility in the in the <laughs> in the sphere of of the research and exchange and dialogue and debate and rhetoric we have, it almost is beholden to me to remain unsuccessful in my life in order to maintain credibility. Because if you become successful and established in the mainstream and have the financial security to pursue more and more uh, further and further research and, and produce greater and greater media, well, then you must be compromised, right? <laughs> or how do you not become compromised? Maybe that's the, the true question, right? And this is something I think a lot of people in this, in this genre or in this particular medium, a lot of people struggle with this, in fact. But So living life out of context with uh, the whole world around you. You know, this is, this is part of the outsider mentality. And the effects, is, like I said, it's just demoralizing. And Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a famous French uh, philosopher, said that without meaning, our will, or the ego, would normally impose, without meaning, our will would normally impose on it, existence is absurd. <laughs> According to Sartre, there is no choice 
There is only uselessness and knowing it or being useless and not knowing it. <laughs> the existentialist man seems a useless passion, according to Sartre, because it's really, you know, that's the, the, the existentialism to the, to the fullest, you know. But yeah, H.G. Wells, a lifelong, uh, basically a lifelong atheist, a scientific uh, rationalist most of his life, he expressed this struggle for himself with with meaning you know the will to meaning as it were in his own little known reversal on materialism not many people know that right before H.G. Wells died he wrote a book or a, a small pamphlet a booklet called The Mind at the End of Its Tether <laughs> which was kind of like a recanting of all of his scientific materialism up until that point almost like as he peered over the edge of total oblivion and uh, eternity he started thinking wait a second maybe I was wrong about this you know <laughs> maybe I want some meaning in my life and I want it to be more than just uh, you know uh, rational certitude and so, you know, and then Elliot, T.S. Elliot with the wasteland, uh, it's hollow and stuffed men that speaks of it as well. Uh, you know, for, for too long, I have felt myself, and I know others can relate to this, I have been the chicken little of my own little world, you know, uh, in, the, in the circle of people I've associated with and, and just feeling so frustrated by this. The intellectual outsider is now... There's this aspect to it, the person that – because remember, the word is not the thing. The map is not the territory. And knowing the difference, that is true enlightenment. Knowing the difference between whether or not the, you know, the, the word is not the thing, right? The map is not the territory. This is important because this – this 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 it's – you know, it's almost like the zen of it, I guess, is what – and I'll elaborate on what I mean by that, but – you know, in the in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? And he alone is aware of the truth. And if all men were aware of that uh, of it, then all life would end as as understood by all people. And this is this is also important. The outsider expresses themselves in in existential terms. So there's that aspect to it. But then the, the other side of it is, I often wonder in our world today, are we not producing a, a society of outsiders? In many ways, because we're all divided and isolated into our little digital framework with our little handheld digital device and streaming the Internet. And we're all, you know, right now I'm sitting in my little monk cell, you know, uh, warmly ensconced on the northeast Atlantic, you know, in the Inner Sanctum Studios, just uh, with my red candle burning. And I'm and I'm in this little isolated monk cell chamber in the 21st century communicating to the world. Wow. What a mind blower. Right. But am I. It is like the outsider mentality to the fullest. So then I started thinking about this. Okay, so if we are producing the little outsider, you know, the postmodern outsider in, in a society of outsiders, well, you know, on the global power elite, the powers that shouldn't be side of it, it's like, oh, they're winning. They're isolating us all and disempowering us and all. But no, yeah, okay, so maybe, maybe from one perspective. But also think about this from another perspective. Think about this. Through this is our power because they cannot stop a billion individual cells, active, 
operative cells, insurgents, if you will. I, I talk of the psychoacoustic insurgency that we're committing right here on this radio show, the, the sonic revolution, right? So the idealistic aspect of it is, is that they can't stop everybody if every cell is going in a different direction in non-compliance and artistic expression and seeking the truth and expressing the truth. So it's almost as if the very thing that may be our undoing is also potentially our salvation or our redemption, which constantly seems to be a theme over and over again. Just like the theme of, of creating a fraudulent atmosphere in which everyone operates almost in a state of fear of exposure. Because you know, like the teacher at the, the front of the class in my, in my schooling days, they were so scared of being exposed. And all it took was me asking a few calculated questions and providing alternative source material to contradict the curriculum, and their entire house of cards would come tumbling down. And that's what they hated. So what they do is they targeted me. And they'd make fun of me in front of the other kids. And they would enlist the aid of the, my peers. And I know some of you people listening to the show tonight grew up with me and know who I am. And they sat in those classrooms and they know what I'm talking about. People become targets. And they become targets to be ridiculed and humiliated publicly in order to disempower them, in order to marginalize. It's the old ad hominem attack. And it happened to me over and over again. Emotional, mental abuse from the, uh, from the teachers and principals, as well as physical assaults from teachers when they were pushed to the point of breaking. And I was the child, and they were an adult, and they would physically assault me. Happened more than once. This is all part of, uh, a, you know, an elaborate process, right, of awakening to the truth. And it, it basically took a huge toll on me psychically because it created a complex, a feeling inside of me like I'm a failure, I'm bad. There's something wrong with me. I can't fit in. Why can't I live life normally like all the other kids? When the report card day came out and everybody opened up their little orange folder, the little envelope, and pulled out the card with the A, B, C, D, F, A, B, C, D, F, right? <laughs> everybody wanted A's, straight A's, and all the kids with the straight A's would be like, look at my straight A's, you know? And then there was me. And I usually, from elementary school to junior high, had straight F's or D minuses across the board. And I would hold it up proudly and I'd show the other kids. And the crazy ironic thing was is they passed me grade after grade with straight F's until I got into junior high and high school. And then that kind of stuff caught up with me because meanwhile, while I was fighting this little ideological struggle, this little personal revolution, I was not in fact learning study skills that you know are really necessary. Remember we talked about Knowledge, like logic, rhetoric, grammar, these things, you do have to learn some basic skills in order to process knowledge and, you know, and uh, cultivate wisdom, as it were, within yourself, critical thinking, independent thought. You have to have some certain skills to communicate that, you know, and to process. And, and so I ignored everything, even the good things that they were trying to teach me. So I had to play quick catch-up, but it took time. I, I actually was so frustrated by the time it all caught up with me, I, I dropped out of school. I left high school at 10th grade, took off and you know, lived on the streets, lived completely like a, a transient, a vagabond as, as a teenager in a very you know, pretty affluent little New England town. I was about the only homeless 17-year-old I knew. I slept uh, in the woods. I slept on the beach. I slept in bathrooms in the freezing cold because they had heat. You know, and, and these are the kind of things that an outsider who takes his idealism to the extreme, <laughs> you know, where I rejected work. You know, to me, the idea of, 
enslaving myself for an hourly wage, it's still something I struggle with. Hence the fact I, you know, I struggle financially with my existence. I, I, as I said, I live a life teetering on the edge of financial ruin most of the time. Outsiders express themselves in terms that are distinguished that between being and nothingness. You know, it's meaning or non-meaning. According to Barbus, another existentialist, death was the most important of all ideas. And why? Because it separates being and not being, right? And so we spend our time in this culture running from this idea, but uh, reason leads uh, seems to lead to an impasse at all times with uh, with the idea of, of such finalities, you know, and, and, and why do I speak all of a sudden? I jump from that subject of, of the book to the idea of finalities and again to the existential aspect because I had, you know, it, as I spoke of, I come from working class people. This is, I was not a part of the, uh, you know, the Brahmin class, as it were. I was a part of the, uh, <laughs> the, the merchant or the, wor- the working class, you know, in our, in our caste system. So to, to step out of line, uh, in the factory, you know, THX 1138, get back in line and keep building your robot. No, I step outside of it and I ask questions. I look around, I pull back the curtain and look behind the, the man behind the curtain and, and, and start to, uh, question the actions of our society and start to call attention to the more inhumane aspects of the lack of morality within our culture, you know? And this stuff is, uh, this is where we enter into that whole outsider mentality once again. So it's, it all boils down, I think, to meaning, to will to meaning. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Will to Meaning. He was a a Jewish German, I believe, who was – he wrote the book and then the Nazis burned his book and put him in a concentration camp and he wrote the book again in his mind all through the camp, survived. I think his entire family was killed in front of him. He survived, gets out and publishes this book called Will to Meaning, which is uh, – you know, it's kind of a stuffy study, you know, psychological study, but it really raises a lot of important aspects to this, you know, the idea of what – what it's me, meaning is what gives us purpose. It seems there has been a considerable response to the topic and concept of the intellectual and ideological outsider. Many of you listening out there have reached out to me personally, messaged me, and said that this is the right subject at the right time to talk about, and we're going to continue to do that too. We're going to explore that and consider the idea of the outsider and outsiderism, if you will, <laughs> in, in the postmodern times. We would probably hit on the subject tonight, but we're going to continue to, con- you know, to hit on that subject as we move forward because I think it's the right subject at the right time as well. And I've been thinking a lot about it and thinking a lot about our postmodern world, our, our virtual reality, the cyberspace world that we have that we coexist with. For myself, it's a second life. I go through my everyday world out there, Working and toiling and paying the bills and keeping the rent paid and keeping the lights on and keeping the food in the refrigerator and, you know, every, all the electronics and electricity moving and flowing and, and then there's this other world that I look to when I'm not moving around in our society. You all know what I'm talking about, but it's become a greater and greater presence in my consciousness. I can only speak for myself. I must imagine, I must assume that you out there listening can relate to me on that. You can relate to that feeling. And something I wanted you all listening tonight to keep in mind, 
when you're listening to the voices that are talking to you. While we continue this uh, psychoacoustic insurrection, I've called it, or sonic revolution, you know, uh, we're tricking our minds in a way with with sounds. We're tricking our minds into thinking about things in a different way. Like I say in the introduction of my my show, it's a, it's a view reality from an entirely different perspective. We try to do that with every show. But there's a theme that runs through this. You know, I want you to keep this in mind. Keep it in the forefront as we're reviewing and unpacking tons of information. But what's the context? That's always the most important question. What is the context to all the content, the, all the content that we review, that we unpack, that we look at? We can run around saying, you know, uh, the sky is falling. We're chicken little. The sky is falling all day long. What's the context of what we say and how can we move forward with it? How do we explore new ideas? And the outsiderism thing that I keep harping upon or thinking about is the idea, okay, so do I, do, do all of you listening feel as socially isolated as I do oftentimes now in our postmodern world? And if so, do you wonder at how in the future are we going to relate? How are we going to affect any kind of change in our world? How are we going to have impact? How can we most have impact? And our, one of our guests tonight, uh, he has often talked to me about getting maximum, you know, impact for your action. What's the, what's the impact from your input? What do you get for the output of your input? And thinking in those terms and, and trying to come up with, uh, positive and powerful ways to respond to reality as it unfolds before us in ways in which we cannot control and trying to decipher the, the information that's being presented to us. So think in terms of that. Think in terms of the context of what's being said. And the other thing to keep in mind is the fact that the struggles of all the outsiders, the intellectuals, the outsider intellectual, the outsider researchers, podcasters, filmmakers, writers, artists, musicians, all of them, the price that we pay psychically, emotionally, that's a you know, socially, and it's something I've been, I've been thinking a lot about lately. The outsider ideals, the the truther ideals, if you will, you know, the the truth seeker in our world today, the conspiracy theorist or conspiracy researcher or you know, new media content reviewer or researcher, is the new stigmatized kind of outcast outsider. What do we do with that? I mean, how do we, in a way, I, I want to explore that theme. I want to consider how do we best resist in a, in a culture that, like ours today? How do we best apply the uh, concept of noncompliance in an effective way? Because it seems hard to have an impact in this world today.
Now let's look at some of the principles of natural law. Now in my extended seminar, which goes over a six-week uh, class of, of uh, lessons, um, I get into these principles deeply in, in, you know, in an extended form. We're not going to do that today because time doesn't allow. I'm going to briefly touch on each one. Okay? The word principles, let's define it. Principle comes from the Latin noun principia. Principia means first, foremost, leading, chief, or most necessary. It is that which matters most. It is the first things that must be understood. Before anything else can be understood, principles have to come first. And this is the problem. Our society does not put principles first. It puts trivialities first, and we're no longer a society that even cares about principles or first things. So first things first. First things or principles have to come first. So let's look at what the principles that underlie natural law. These are the things that are most important. That's what principles should mean to people. If we ask people to find what a principle is, first thing they should say, that's the most important thing. The most important thing in my life. Now, when in, in the natural law seminar, we did a homework assignment. We asked people what the most important thing was to them. Very few responded with principles. Most people responded with saying that people or the family was the number one response. The familial connection was more important to them than principles. Now, when people hear me say that that's backwards, they'll say, how cold are you? That's so cold, okay? What I'm telling you is that the familial connection, no matter what it is, between a mother and a son, a mother and a daughter, a father and a son, father and a daughter, husband and wife, doesn't matter as much as principles. I'm not telling you they don't matter at all. I'm telling you, you have to put principles first. Otherwise, those relationships are just meaningless. They don't really have any real value unless they're based upon principles first, which is why so many relationships are dysfunctional. Principles have to come first before you can even build a solid relationship with another human being. So, let's look at what some of the principles of how natural laws work first before we can actually find out what the expressions of these laws are in our lives, which will be the next section. These are what I call the general principles of natural law. Natural law is expressed through seven basic underlying principles, plus what I have referred to as an eighth or hidden principle, which you, you hear very few other researchers, even people who are studying this from the occult perspective, who are studying this from the consequentialism perspective, you very hear them incorporate the eighth and all-encompassing principle, which I'll, I'll get to last here. This eighth principle, which I call the lost principle, binds all the other seven principles together. All right? These principles together constitute a master key through which universal wisdom, including the knowledge of the requirements to obtaining what we desire, is then unveiled or de-occulted. When, when, when people ask me, well, what do you consider yourself in your performance of, of present, presenting what you present? I tell them, I consider myself a de-occultist. I'm no longer an occultist. I'm a de-occultist. I'm attempting to take this information out of hiding. It's been hidden. The hiding of it is destroying the fabric of our society and putting us into bondage. It needs to come out and be non-hidden. 
needs to be unveiled and shared widely and freely with anybody who's capable of accepting it and comprehending it now. Because we're, in, we're not in a position where we could wait longer. We're, not in a, we're at the precipice, okay? There is a, uh, a moral obligation to bring this information to the public now, okay? So I consider myself a deocultist. One who takes things out of hiding and presents them openly. These are the seven general principles of natural law. Many people who have studied some variants of occultism may recognize these as what are known as the hermetic principles. Hermetic essentially comes from Hermes. Hermes Tresmegistus, the, the, the thrice great one, as he was referred to in the ancient uh, Greek mystery traditions. Okay? He was uh, considered a messenger of the gods. He brought the wisdom of the gods down to humanity. Okay, In the ancient Egyptian and Kemetian tradition, traditions, he was the scribe of the gods known as Thoth. All right? He has other incarnations as well. But the hermetic tradition is named such because it's hermetically sealed, like natural law is. Natural law is hermetically sealed. It is binding principles that are immutable. They are laws that are in operation that cannot be changed. Hence, they are hermetically sealed. So, these pr- seven general principles, they are mentalism, correspondence, vibration, polarity, rhythm, cause and effect, which is a huge one, which we'll be getting into, and gender. So, I'm going to briefly describe what each of these are and what they are about. The principle of mentalism states that the all... Everything in creation is actually a manifestation of mind. The all is mind. What this means is everything that happens has to be a result of a mental state which preceded it. Everything. For anything to exist, thoughts had to form first, and then they formed the physical reality after. The universe itself is a mental construct of the creator. Thoughts lead to the manifestation of things and events. Thoughts create conditions. Thoughts create things and conditions. They cannot just magically manifest themselves. Thought comes first. Thoughts create our state of existence and the quality of our experience here on earth, ultimately. Therefore, be responsible for everything. We should be responsible for everything that we create by being responsible for that which we think. Because the thought processes are what are driving the behaviors. People behave the way they do because they have certain belief systems embedded in the mind and running like a program. Their thoughts and their emotions are driving their actions. So the behavior is not magically suddenly going to just change. The thoughts and emotions have to change because they're the driving force behind the behavior. That's when reality will change. See, people don't want to hear that, once again. They don't want to hear. If you want to change reality, you, yourself, have to change the way you think. Because the way you think is not conducive to the requirements for getting what you say you want. They're doing the exact opposite of that in many cases. So that's the principle of mentalism. The principle of correspondence states that that which is above is similar or like to that which is below. So what this means is, that which is below 
and that which is below is like to that which is above. It's a mirror, okay? The above is like the below, the below is like the above, all right? The above, in this case, is the macrocosm, okay? The, the laws of the very large things, okay? The laws that govern the creation, which we consider is seemingly outside of ourselves. We know, we know at the deepest level that it's not, that we're one with it, but, you know, we perceive this as out here. The laws that, that are, govern the, the large aspects of things. So the macrocosm were the very large, the totality of everything. And the microcosm, which is the very small, were the individuated units that comprise the whole in their aggregate. Okay? They are reflections of each other. They cannot be separated from each other. As one goes, the other goes. The universe is actually a holographic system. Okay, it's a hologram is an image. Okay, you pass a, a laser through it, and it then projects a three D image. Okay, it's like a flat image, and it projects a three dimensional image. But the aspect why they call it a hollow, like holistic hologram, holistic image, is if you break a hologram into multiple components by cutting it. So if I take a hologram and I cut it in four pieces, you don't have a quarter of the image on one part of the hologram and a quarter on the other and a quarter on the third and a quarter on the fourth. You have four whole images that only lose their resolution by a quarter. Okay? So everything is contained in all the smaller parts. Okay? That's like the reality that we're living in. Our universe is a holographic one. So the universe is inside the individual. And the entire universe is like an individual. They're reflections of each other. To know the workings of the individual will help lead us to an understanding of the macrocosmic laws. Similarly, to learn the macrocosmic laws will help us to learn the way that consciousness within the individual functions. These two things cannot be separated from each other. And once again, as I said at the, near the beginning, that's what occulted knowledge is. The knowledge of the occult is how the microcosmic world works, which is the individuated consciousness, and how the macrocosmic world works, which is natural law. So the other part of the principle of correspondence is that our reality is also fractal in nature. Now, if you studied fractals, these are self-similar mathematical generated patterns. Okay, We see this through things like Fibonacci sequence in, in mathematics, and this is repeated endlessly throughout nature. Okay, so you look at, you look at the, um, structure of the atom, and it's similar to the structure of the solar system, which is similar to the structure of the galaxy. They work the same way. They look the same. You pull back enough, you'll keep seeing the same pattern repeat. Everybody ever see the movie that was done in, I think, the 1970s or 80s? It's a short, like, 10 minute clip. It's called Powers of Ten. Has anybody ever seen this? Yes. Couple people. Watch this movie, Powers of Ten, and you'll understand what I'm talking about when I say that the universe is fractal in nature. Brilliant movie, it will blow your mind, real short, ten minutes long, something like nine or ten minutes long. They, they basically zoom up into the cosmos to show you how everything is self-similar, then they zoom down into the cells of a human being and into the atoms that, that comprise the hand and, and cells of the hand and show you how everything is similar there, all the way down to the atomic level. Okay? And the subatomic level. So, uh, the universe is both holographic, 
meaning that the whole is contained in the parts and vice versa, and it is fractal or self-similar across all scales of its existence. That's the principle of correspondence. The principle of vibration simply states that there is no such thing as rest, as dead or, or non-motion. Okay, Death, in that sense, is an illusion because true death would be the cessation of all motion and energy. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. You cannot go anywhere in creation where something is com- at complete rest. Okay, And I joke around about this. Barb tells me funny stories when she comes home from from work and she's trying to you know enlighten some of the other RNs that she works with and she was trying to explain to one of the uh, other nurses you know that desk has atoms in it and they're not at rest they're like in crazy chaotic motion especially the you know electron clouds of the atom and if you look at it at a deep enough level you would see it's like you know chaos going on and it's all kinds of motion happening seemingly at random and the other nurse goes, Barb, you're so crazy. You know, what, what I say to that is, how could you have made it to nursing school and not ever have, under, have even considered the concept of the atom? Right. You know, and it's amazing. You know, she actually thinks perceived stillness is actual stillness and didn't comprehend. If you zoom into that with a powerful enough microscope, you're going to see all kinds of motion and nothing's at rest. And she thought Barb was the weird one for trying to explain that to her. Okay, so there is no such thing as true rest. It doesn't exist. If, if something's in existence, it's in motion. Everything moves, everything vibrates, and at the most fundamental level, the universe and every single thing which comprises it is ultimately pure vibratory energy that is manifesting itself in different ways, different frequencies, different vibratory forms. The universe has no true solidity as such as we imagine solidity at the macrocosmic level. Matter is merely energy in a state of vibration. And what this is, if we truly understand this, and many sciences are now finally really understanding this and try, trying to propagate this knowledge out into the public, we will, we will come to the understanding that this is a spiritual construct for experience to be gained, to have a, an experience and learn and grow in consciousness. That's what the purpose of this whole thing is for, you know? So nothing is truly solid, you know? It's, it's, a, it's again, like we say, we are spirit Having a human experience, the whole universe is spiritual. Having a, a, a experience in solidity. All right, that's how you have to look at the principle of vibration. The principle of polarity states that everything has a dual nature to it. There are polarities in everything that exists. Okay, everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposites. However, opposites they they are identical in nature but they're different in degree. So let me give you an example of what that means. Are hot and cold really opposites? Or can we simply look at them as the presence of heat energy or the absence of heat energy? Meaning that they're the same thing, energy. And whether it's concentrated in a specific area, which would make it hot, or whether it's absent from a specific area, which would make it cold. Okay, That's what hot and cold are at the fundamental level. At our level of perception, they're opposites, but at the fundamental level, they're the same thing, energy 
or its or lack thereof. Just like those three stages of the trivium. Are knowledge and ignorance the same thing? Yeah, actually they are. Because truth is always present. It's a matter of whether it's pre- whether it's taken in and processed or whether it's refused to be taken in and it's not processed. Okay? So it's it's just like that. They're, they're, they're identical in their natures, but they're different in their degree. Okay? Extremes can meet and blend and, you know, play with each other, like as depicted in the yin-yang symbol, masculine and feminine. They need to be blended. And at some level of reality, everything that is seemingly contradictory may be reconciled. Now, again, I stress the term at some level. At the unified field level, this, everything is consciousness, pure consciousness. However, at this level, there are differences in consciousness. At this level, there are things that are taking place that we need to understand. At this level, there are things that we need to set right and rectify because it does matter. It does matter. Okay? So, again, be careful with some of the new age-isms that get put out there. Yes, do it, can all paradoxes be reconciled? At some level. In this realm... We need to have our feet on the ground in the physical domain. You know, the con- this is the concept in the, in the hermetic tradition, which is where a lot of this understanding derived from, out of ancient Egypt, what was known as Chem, the land called Chem, was what the actual Chemetians uh, referred to it as. Uh, the word Egypt is a bastardization of the capital, the Greek pronunciation of the capital city of Chem, which was Memphis at one point. And that city was referred to as Hygeptos in Greek. And that became Egypt in English. But the original name for Egypt was Chem. That's simply called black or dark in their language. It was the, the black land. And we get the word alchemy, which means, again, al, from. Okay? It means from the black land. Al-Kemet, which is where alchemy comes from. And that means out of darkness, this knowledge will come and bring light. Because a lot of these mystery tradition teachings do come from Chem. And also the people who took it from Chem and started to propagate it in other areas were the, the, um, uh, uh, the Greeks in the Greek mystery traditions. And again, there was light sides and dark sides to all these mystery traditions. Okay. There were some who used the knowledge wisely and tried to propagate it and tried to elevate human consciousness, and there were those who wanted to use it selfishly for their own benefit and to control others. So uh, my point was uh, that um, in, the, uh, in the Egyptian mystery tradition, um, they um, uh, I, I lost my train of thought there, I'm sorry. Uh, I was talking about all, all paradoxes may be reconciled at some level, and uh, uh, I brought up the mystery traditions. I can't remember why I went into, into that, so I'll just keep going. Um, let's look at the principle of rhythm. Everything flows out and in. Everything has its tides. All things rise and fall. Okay, so everything has a rhythm to it or a swing to it. There's tendencies that exist in energy. The pendulum swing manifests in everything that we undergo everything we perceive. The measure of the swing to the right is the measure of the swing to the left. It's just an opposite. It's perceived as an opposite. Rhythm will compensate. Now, what this, how this should be understood when we are talking about natural law is many people will say, well, that's just the way the tendency is moving us. It's just the way the tide is taking us, right? 
But that's not really accurate. Okay? We can't look at these things as that the rhythms are set in stone and it has to be this way now. Right? One of the things that a lot of the hermetic tradition taught regarding these laws, the, these principles, were they can be overcome by higher levels of consciousness. Okay? This one was one of them. Rhythm is a principle that is a tendency for something to swing a certain way. It's, it's, let's, let's liken it to genetics. You know, if you look at some newer biology, a lot of modern biologists are suggesting consciousness plays into whether a gene activates or not and expresses a certain condition. Well, this is the same way. There's something that can be done about the swing or the tide. Okay? Let's look at it as you have a boat. You want to row the boat out to sea. Right? You have to get past the tide. You have to get past the breakers and the waves. And if that tide's really strong at high tide, it's going to be very much more difficult. You're going to have to expend more energy to get it out to sea. If, however, you were taking it when the current's moving out to sea, okay, there, there's a, a flow that's moving outward deeper into the ocean, and you start rowing that boat then, you're going to be able to do it much more easily. Okay, so if there's, if there's winds pushing along a plane, it's going to have to expend less energy. It's going to get there qu more quickly. Okay, because it's adding to the energy. If, however, you're flying against the wind, you've got to expend a lot more energy. It's just a tendency. You can still get to where you want to go. You may just have to exert more effort. Right now, we're in a tendency of things are, are not flowing. Okay, it's an ebb. All right, and it's something that needs to really have more energy put into it if we're going to resist the tendency. It doesn't mean nothing can be done about it. It doesn't mean it can't be overcome. It means at the time we're living in, okay, we want to make this motion go in this direction, but its tendency is to move in this direction. So more will is required at this time to move the consciousness. At other times, the consciousness may be flowing in a positive direction, and it may take much less energy in order to move that consciousness forward. However, we're not living in that time. We are living at what many researchers have called the Kali Yuga, or the age of darkness and destruction. You know, this is the, the point that resists the flow in consciousness the most. And it's going to take an enormity of effort to break down these pre-existing belief systems that don't serve who we are. So that's the principle of rhythm. This is the principle here in natural law that most fits in with how I'm using the term natural law today cause and effect. Many people, again, in the New Age community don't want to believe that there's causes and effects and that effects are driven by causes that, you know, come first and then manifest conditions. So the principle of cause and effect simply states that every cause has its effect and every effect has its cause. Uh, every single thing that occurs happens according to law, all right? Chance is a name for law, a law not recognized. There are many planes of causation, but nothing escapes the law. So again, is there free will? Yes, there is free will. But is there free will to ignore law without consequence? No, there is not. That's the limit of free will. Free will is operating within boundary conditions that I'm referring to as natural law. It's a series of laws, actually. Okay? 
free will operates within these parameters or boundary conditions that cannot be exceeded or gone beyond without consequence. Oh yeah, you can break natural law. Yes, you can break it. But you cannot break it without consequence. You cannot break it without consequence. Negative consequence. And that's why this body of knowledge has in the past been referred to as consequentialism. It is the knowledge of how consequences are generated by our free will decision-making processes within the boundaries of natural law. So this is the law of cause and effect, the principle of cause and effect. And I think this image, I was searching for images that encapsulate cause and effect, and I found this cartoon, and I think it does it brilliantly. Most of all, because will the effect happen immediately? No, it will not happen immediately. There is a time lag. You set the cause into motion, the universe is going to intelligently bring to you through a rearrangement of all the dynamics that it needs to rearrange, the effect of what you've generated by setting that cause into motion. And there is a time gap between the, the cause going into place and the effect coming around and hitting you. This is why the pattern recognition of cause and effect is more difficult, because it is separated by a time lag, by what we perceive as linear time. Now, if you did a wrong to somebody and immediately you were stung by a wasp every single time you did a wrong to somebody, it showed up and bit you immediately within two seconds of you hurting somebody, stealing from somebody, lying to somebody, etc. Would you start to connect the stinging to the wrong that you did? I think most people would see the pattern. They would recognize the pattern. But since that doesn't happen, and there's a time lag to, gener to experiencing something harmful to ourselves once we do something harmful to other people, it's very difficult for people to see the, the connection through the time lag. Most, uh, and moreover, it doesn't exactly happen in a one-to-one -one ratio like this, okay? It's more, karmic consequence is more complicated than all of that. All right. What's happening is that all of us are experiencing in the aggregate the wrongs that the human species is conducting on a daily basis, which we do not attempt to rectify and stop through our inaction. Karma is being accrued. People think that karma can only be accrued from action. No, it cannot. It can be accrued from inaction as well. And that's where many people in our society is. They're not taking any action, and they're willing to let evil run unchecked. So this is ultimately going to come back and bite us. you know. And what we set into motion is going to actually topple over onto us if we don't change our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. So nothing escapes law. We are bound by it eternally. You know, let me just go back. Go back. I'll leave it on, on this slide for a moment. You know, for some people familiar with my work, you've seen me break down the Matrix trilogy. And the law of cause and effect is brought forward extensively in the second Matrix movie, The Matrix Reloaded. And the, the scene that encapsulates this the most is the, the character of the Merovingian, who tells to the heroes who want to be free from the Matrix and its control, okay, you 
are coming to me without an understanding of why you are in this position. You don't understand the causal factors that have led to the current conditions that are in place. Therefore, you are coming to me with no power to affect change. You are powerless. So why should I help you? You're powerless because you lack knowledge and understanding of what set these events into motion. Why? The question why, he says, why is the only source of real power without why you are powerless? He's talking about cause and effect, and he says it specifically. Causality, he calls the only real truth. And this is the villain. The words of truth come through one of the, it's a big technique in Hollywood too. The words of truth are spoken by the villain in the movie or in the series. Okay? But if you listen, and there is a twist, a dark twist to what he says. He says, free will is like an illusion. No, it is not. That's where the dark occultist is trying to trip up the heroes. There are both, free will and natural law. He tries to say free will. The Morpheus character says to him, everything starts with choice. And Morpheus is correct. Our choices set that causality into motion before it becomes an effect. And the Merovingian tries to tell him, no, there is no free will. That's where the dark occultist will give you the bulk of truth and then poison it with that one thing he wants to get you to accept. Okay? So, the, the next thing that needs to be understood is the two planes. Alright, there's the plane of effects and then there's the plane of causes. No power to affect any change lies on the plane of effects, which is the physical manifested reality. Again, what already is, nothing can be done about. What already is, you cannot change. You cannot change the past. You can change what it is starting now and make sure that it gets changed in the future. But right now, what is, is the truth, and all you could do is accept that or reject it. You can't change the past. So the physical world that is manifested up to this point happened because of things that occurred in the past. The causes happened in the past. Nothing you could do about that right now. Okay? The plane of effects of the physical world is where manifested realities have already occurred, have already taken shape, have already formed due to their underlying causal factors. The plane of effects constitutes that which has already occurred. As such, no power to affect change lies here because that which has already occurred cannot unoccur. That which has occurred can't undo itself. It happened. It's already done. It has become that which is or truth. Human consciousness seems to be trapped upon the plane of effects, meaning that humanity as a whole remains ignorant of the underlying causes, causes which they themselves have set into motion and which lead to self-inflicted suffering in their lives. So if you're trapped at this level, what you're doing is you're looking at the symptoms and you're stuck looking at the symptoms. Okay, This is everybody... Oh, there's a political solution to this. We need to vote in the right people. Oh, there's a financial solution to this. We just need to set the right monetary policy. No, there's a scientific solution to this. And technological advancements are going to be made that suddenly save ourselves and make the world any different. And they think all of this is going to be done while slavery is still in place. Well, again, good luck with that. Let me know how it works out. Okay? I speak at free energy-related events. I work with the Tesla Science Foundation. 
I speak at MUFON-related events that talk about disclosure of extraterrestrial presence, okay? Both of these communities don't understand. The things that they say they want are impossible. And I'm going to start talking about them in, in this way more openly, you know, because I've kind of like uh, given them some soft teachings, and I think they need to hear it a little bit more harshly because both of these communities are not talking about morality, to the extent that they need to. They think, we're going to have free energy, but nothing's going to change as far as the social structure of the world goes. We'll just develop free energy, and that'll magically save us. We'll still have slavery, but free energy will be here, and the world will be a magically better place. The UFO community, they often think, oh, we're going to get disclosure. They're going to come out and tell us everything we know about other intelligences that are out there in the galaxy and in the universe with us, Okay. And they think they're going to get that in a climate of slavery. Well, good luck with all those things. you got to take down the existing structure first. Okay? People think, oh, we got to build the new world while the old one decays. You have to destroy the existing power structure with the power of truth before anything new is going to grow here. Because this place is a garden full of weeds of poisoned ideologies and completely erroneous belief systems that have no bearing on truth whatsoever and cannot get us what we say we want. Until that cha- those, those thoughts are changed, don't expect the results you want. So to the free energy movement, I say you're never going to get free energy in a climate of slavery. To the UFO community, I say you will never get disclosure in a climate of slavery. Slavery has to end first. Then you could get what you say you want. So, again, no power to affect any change lies in the world of effects. Cannot be done. You are rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic while it sinks. You're not creating any change doing those things. Because the underlying causes aren't changing. And the underlying causes are how we think, how we feel, and how we behave. And no one wants to look at that. They want to think, all those things can stay in place, and I can magically get what I want. I want to keep my hand over the fire, but I don't want it to burn and blister. Well, enjoy. See, find out what you get when you do that, because that's what we're doing when it comes to natural law. So let's look at the plane of causality. This is the other plane. This is the mental realm, the mental world. Again, according to the law of mentalism, the first principle of natural law, Everything that manifests must first manifest in mind before it can manifest physically. So again, if the plane of causality is the mental world that's generating the causes in mind, okay, everything is happening there first, and then it is trickling down to the physical domain. It is manifesting in the physical domain only after it has manifested in the mental world. The plane of causality is where causes are set into motion prior to those causes manifesting as formed realities in the plane of effects. This plane of causality constitutes the causal factors, the why, which underlies and precedes all manifested things and events. All power, all power to effect change lies on this plane of reality. Human consciousness must move away from the plane of effects and to the plane of causality in order for human beings to understand the causal factors of the conditions 
which they are collectively manifesting in their lives. Only then will humanity be able to co-create their shared reality on a conscious level, meaning with an understanding of how natural law operates, rather than on, on an unconscious level, meaning that we don't understand how natural law operates. And I just look at it in a simple graphic, in a simple, you know, chart or graph. This is the, this is the higher realm. This is the world of causality, the mental world, the why, the underlying causal factors, okay, that precede conditions which, which are manifested. This is where our consciousness has to go because this is where all power to affect change is at. In the understanding of why that manifested to begin with. So these are the symptoms. This, this line could be looked at as the diagnosis. You have to make that diagnosis and get to the underlying causal factors that lead to the symptoms. Okay? The plane of effects, on the other hand, meaning the physical world, is the manifested realm. That which has already occurred, that cannot be undone. At least in the, in the present moment, you could start in the present to undo it in the future. But as far as the present moment and all moments in the past go, you're not changing that. That's truth. That's what is. Okay? That's already manifested. You can't change it. No power to affect, to affect change lies in continuously analyzing the symptoms. You gotta do that long enough that you know where the problem's at. You've made the diagnosis. Now you can get to the causal factors and start going to work changing those causes. Okay? Unfortunately, this plane, the plane of effect seems to be where human consciousness in the aggregate is trapped. It can't seem to get past there. Even if it recognizes the problem, it wants to keep describing the problem. It wants to keep describing the prison. It doesn't want to look at the causal factors because it's afraid of what the causal factors are. It doesn't want to acknowledge the causal factors lie in how we think, feel, and act. And until those things are changed, the, the external manifestation cannot change. That takes responsibility. The final principle of the um, seven principles of natural law, at least the, the formalized ones, are gender. Again, I'm going to talk about an eighth lost one. Gender exists in everything. Everything has its masculine and its feminine components or principles. We've already seen that when it comes to the human brain, consciousness, worldview, etc. Gender manifests on all planes of existence. Spiritual, mental, physical, everything. Okay? Very simple concept. What I want to briefly talk about is mental gender. Mental gender is the state of coexistence between the masculine and feminine aspects of the mind. Again, we've already looked at this. We looked at the breakdown of the physiology of the brain, at least of the higher order part of the brain, the neocortex. Our left brain hemisphere largely facilitates the masculine aspects of the mind or the intellect, logic, analytical thought, linear thought processes, while the right brain hemisphere largely facilitates the feminine aspect or intuition, meaning creativity, compassion, and holistic thought processes. This next section is what I call the lost principle. This is the eighth principle of natural law, which binds all of the other principles together. Okay, it is what I would call the encapsulating principle. Okay, it's the container inside which all the other principles fit very nicely and neatly. 
However, it's lost because we're not exercising it. See, we already looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven principles of natural law. And there they are represented by these circles overlapping each other. Okay? Can anybody see an eighth circle anywhere? You got it. Correct. Here's the eighth circle. And this might look familiar. You might have seen this somewhere. Okay? This, this pattern is called something. Does anybody know what this pattern is called? What is it? Not the flower of life. The seed of life. The seed of life. Okay? Now, what happens from a seed? It grows. It generates something. It creates something. A seed has an outer casing, an outer shell. Okay? Then if you're going to get to the inner core of it that contains all of the creative, genetic, generative material, okay, that shell has to be there and intact. You break the shell of the seed, the creative essence of the seed is going to be gone. Okay? Now, what is that principle? Here's what that principle is. It's the eighth or what I call the lost principle. And it's the thing that has to be present in order for any change to manifest itself. And it is not what most people think of it as. Even when I tell you what this is, I guarantee you there will be an inaccurate connotative meaning for what people think this means. Okay? Here's what the eighth principle is. It is known as the generative principle or the principle which governs creation, which actually is the causal factor that goes into effect and generates the result that we say that we want. But what's the real term for it? Who can guess what the actual term, what the generative principle of creation actually is? No, it is not action. It, okay, now most people will say it's love. I want to distinguish it from the concept of love, even as I'm going to describe love in this presentation a little bit later on. Okay? What is it? Procreation. No? What? Somebody said it. Somebody said something else. No? Who? Care. There it is. Okay? The generative principle is care. Now, this is different than compassion. People say, why don't you use the word compassion? Because that's not what I'm talking about. It is a different concept than compassion or even what I would describe as love. Care, and I mean care with a capital C, and here I didn't even put it with a capital C. I'm just putting it in all uppercase. All uppercase care. D- distinguish this from care with a lowercase c. Okay? This means... What are you giving attention and helping to grow? What are you focusing upon? Because what focus you're focusing upon, that's what's ultimately getting generated, getting created, and growing. And this doesn't mean be ignorant of what's going on in the world and don't look at anything that's negative because you're going to feed that and give power to it. That's not what it means. Okay? That means you know what you're feeding? In that instance, if you want to do that, you're feeding ignorance. And that's what's going to grow. It's the exact opposite that the New Agers want you to believe that it is. By ignoring the negative, you are ensuring that more of it occurs. You are fueling it 
by ignorance, ensuring that it grows and takes over. Okay? What care has to be looked at here as is, this is what you're giving your energy to. This is what you're focused upon. This is what you actually care enough about to do, to spend your time on, to put your attention on, to manifest in the world. That's what I'm talking about as care, okay? That's what generates our experience in the aggregate. Most people don't care about what's really happening. Therefore, it is an impossibility for us in the aggregate to change the direction of energy, to change the direction of consciousness, and ultimately to get what we say we want. That's how the real law of attraction works, all right? Here's how it actually operates. The lost principle is the dynamic of care. What we care about on a day-to-day basis acts as the driving force of our thoughts and actions. What did I say we need to develop? The heart, mind, guts, right? Heart, mind, guts, in that order. Care comes first. You gotta care enough to know, to develop the knowledge, okay? Then you gotta act on it and put it into practice. Apply it. So that's the order. Heart, mind, guts. Care, knowledge, action. Those are the steps, okay? And all three of those have to be in place. All three. That's what unity consciousness is. It's unifying thoughts, emotions, and actions. The three aspects of consciousness, such that there is no contradiction between them. Our thoughts, what we say, what we think, how we feel, and how we act are one and the same. There's no contradiction. That's unity consciousness, okay? Therefore, Okay, since it's the care is the driver of our thoughts and actions, it ultimately can be seen as the generator of the quality of our shared experience here on the earth. Care is what generates the whole thing. Hence, it has been called the generative principle. Liken the heart to a pump in the body. Well, what does a pump do? It's a generator. It provides energy. It moves the life force through the blood in the body. In every ancient tradition, they talk about the life force being in the blood. The heart is what pumps that through the whole physiology and enables us to continue to sustain life, okay? The heart is the generator, it's the pump. It's the center of the being. As important as the brain is, which we just talked about the importance of it, the heart is ultimately what's generating the experience because what we care about determines what we think about on a daily basis most of the time and therefore how we behave, all right? So the, this principle has often been referred to as the generative principle. Uh, is anybody familiar with the compasses and square symbol of Freemasonry with the G in the middle? Well, that's what the G stands for at the highest level. They'll talk about many, many porch masons. These are the exoteric masons that are given the teachings of the profane and they think they're in the know, okay? They're given the the information, well, this only means geometry, it only means God, etc., okay? One of the things they'll tell you it means at a slightly higher level is that it means gnosis, knowledge, okay? Which we saw the meaning of in Greek earlier. At a higher level, at illuminated levels of Freemasonry, which were above 32nd degree, 
they will give you what the real meaning of the G inside the compasses and square is. And it is the generative principle. It means genesis, creation, okay? And yeah, you can tie that right back to God. I'm not saying those things are different. And the, the forms that get created in the physical manifested world are geometric forms. So it is geometry as well. It's all these things. But at the highest level, it's the generative principle. That's what that G really stands for in esoteric Freemasonry. Okay? It's called the generative principle because that means to create. It comes from, the word generative comes from Latin, the verb Genere, as we've already talked about, means to create. The generative principle is what we create through. And it's lost because people don't care. They don't have care. Hence, it's the lost principle. Okay? Here's how it works, folks. What we care enough to put our will behind. Okay? So again, heart, mind, guts. Guts is the will. The action, the masculine principle. That's what gets, gets things done ultimately in the physical domain. What we care enough to put our will behind. And that's driven by the care. That's the generator or the pump that drives the will. Okay? What we care enough to put our will behind is ultimately what gets created or manifested in our world. The world is the way that it is because most people do not care enough even if they say, they pay lip service, okay, and say that they want things to be different, they don't care enough to actually change it through their actions. Because when, it, again, when it comes all down to it, and I said this in my New Age, uh, you know, uh, BS seminar or, or lecture, okay, what it comes down to is preventing action, Preventing action. That's what the New Age community is designed to do. They want people inactive. Because the dark occultists know that the thing that is ultimately generating our reality is behavior. As you saw in that simple four-part chart. That little you know building block chart that I put up there. Action is what's generating the reality. That gets generated through what we care about. Because our cares and our desires drive our actions. Okay, so most people will say they want things to change, but then when you say, what are you doing to make that change happen? Not a word. Silence comes back on the other end. Okay, so they don't care enough to change it through their actions. That's what the generative or lost principle is about. And until that principle is regained and people get out of their laziness and most of all get out of their cowardice, again, in that New Age lecture, I'm talking about what it ultimately comes down to in the New Age movement, and I'll look at any New Ager in the eyes. They're cowards. Cowards. Ultimately, they know the evil that we're up against, and they intend to do not a damn thing about it. That's what it really, that's what it really comes down to. And anybody telling you it's different than that is lying to you. Okay? They're cowards. Period. And I'll say it right to any of their faces. Anything I say up here, anybody that believes in that nonsense, come and bring them to me. I'll tell them right to their face. Straight and open, just like I said it here. Because I don't care. I don't care about their nonsense. I care about what's real. Okay? So, I'm telling you, this religion has to go. 
It's got to go. If people are going to make real change happen, the idea that it can't be done, uh, that it can be done without taking actual real world action has to be purged from human consciousness. Reality does not work like that. Period. The end. And I can't make you accept that. I recognize I can't make anybody in this room accept that. All I can do is put it out there for your consideration. And if you have some common sense and really, really think about it, you'll understand what I'm saying here is absolutely the way it is. Okay? Many people want to deceive you through these religious notions, okay, which is all about getting people to stand down and accept their chains. That's what that religion's in place for. Inner breathlessness. Out of restlessness. By the time I caught up to freedom, I was out of breath. Grandma asked me what I'm running for. Dance, I'm out for the same thing the son is sunning for. What mother's birth are youngins for? And some say Jesus coming for. For all I know, the earth is spinning slow. Sun's at half mass, cause masses ain't a glow. On bended knee, prostrate before an altered tree. I've made the forest suit me. Tables and chairs, papers and prayers, matter for a spirit. A metal ladder, a wooden cross, a plastic bottle of water, a mandala encased in glass, a spirit encased in flesh. Sound from shaped hollows, the thickest of mucus released from heightened passion. A man that cries in his sleep, a truth that has gone out of fashion, a mode of expression, a paint splattered wall, a carton of cigarettes, a bouquet of corpses, a dying forest, a nurtured garden, a privatized prison, a Candle with a broken wick, a puddle that reflects the sun, a piece of paper with my name on it. I'm surrounded, I surrender all, all that I am, I have been. All I have been has been a long time coming. I am becoming all that I am. The spittle that surrounds the mouthpiece of the flute, unheard yet felt, a gathered wetness, a quiet moisture, sound trapped in a bubble, released into wind. Wind fellows and land merchants, we are history's detergent, water soluble light particles, articles of cleansing breath, articles amending death. These words are not tools of communication, they are shards of metal dropped from eight story windows. They are waterfalls and gas leaks, aged thoughts rolled in tobacco leaf. The tools of a trade, barters barred, barred of barters, catchphrases and misunderstandings, but they are not what I feel when I am alone, surrounded by everything and nothing, and there isn't a word, a phrase to be caught, a verse to be recited, a mantra to fill my being in those moments. I am a blankness, the contained center of an O, the pyramidic containment of an A. I stand in the middle of all that I have learned, all that I have memorized, all that I have known by heart, unable to reach any of it. There is no sadness, there is no bliss, it is a forgotten memory, a memorable escape route that only is found by not looking. There, in the spine of the dictionary, the words are worthless. They are a mere weight pressing against my thoughtlessness. But then, who else can speak of thoughtlessness with such confidence? Who else has learned to sling these ancient ideas like dead rats held by their tails so as not to infect this newly oiled skin? I can think of nothing heavier than an airplane. I can think of no greater conglomerate of steel and metal. I can think of nothing less likely to fly. There are no wings more weighted. I, too, have felt a heaviness, the stare of a man. Man guessing at my being, yes, I am a homeless, a homeless man making offerings.
dreams to the after future Sculpting rubber tree forests out of worn tires and shoe soles A nation unified in exhale A cloud of smoke, a native pipe ceremony All the gathered cigarette butts piled in heaps Snow-covered mountains, lipstick smeared and shriveled Offerings to an afterworld Tattoo guns and plastic wrappers Broken zippers and dead-eyed dolls It's all overwhelming me, oak and elming me I have seeded a forest of myself, little books from tall trees It matters not what this paper be made of Give me notebooks made of human flesh Dried on steel hooks and nooses Make uses of use, uses of us It's all overwhelming me, oak and elming me I've seeded a forest of myself, little books from tall trees On bended knee, prostrate before an altar tree I've made the forest suit me Tables and chairs, papers and prayers Matter verse spirit Through meditation I program my heart to beat break beats and hum bass lines on exhalation. Like I said, many of us have been doing this for a very long time. And uh, during the course of our research, we've always illuminated the forces out there and what they're doing to us. And when I did my own research on it, the Illuminati, the Bilderberg, however you want to classify it, you know, I wondered, well, how did they get so much power? You know, not only how did they become so powerful, but how did they maintain their power? And us as whistleblowers, or truth seekers, if you will, how do we break that power? Do we do it by marching? The Occupy movement? I mean, marching on City Hall? And then I realized these methods have been going on for quite some time. And apparently they're not working because these people are still in power and they're striving to increase their power, which means to take away our rights. So I realized, well, how exactly do we free our minds? How do how do we break their power? And then I realized you do it by going with them. Because to continuously rail against them, however you want to do it, marching, whatever, you're basically telling them they still don't get it. Because they're still trying to fight us outwardly. They want to keep us focused externally. And as long as we do that, we can't go with them, where the real power is. Okay, so I really began to research that. And being a big fan of psychology, I came across the works of Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, Neville Goddard, Dr. Connie's wife. Because even when I was growing up, I was constantly told by the people around me, oh, don't strike too high. You're only going to get so far. And because there's always someone out there that's going to hold you back. And what gives somebody out there more power over me? I mean, I refuse to believe that this creator that created everything and everyone set it up that way. There's just something in me that wouldn't allow me to believe that. That the creator actually designed all of this for one man to oppress another. So when I came across the works of Dr. And I must say, out of all the authors that I've encountered, and we're all avid readers here, Dr. Brandon had the most profound effect 
life. Why do I say that? Because, in my opinion, he has the best methods for going within and breaking the chains on our minds. You know, because through religion, or organized distorted doctrine, as I call it, that's my name, <laughs> organized distorted doctrine. <laughs> right. Uh, mass media and uh, the public fool system, you know, which I'm quite sure many of us have experienced. You know, we were also taught to folk out outwardly as well. You know, we weren't taught how to think, we were taught what to think. Big difference. So that whatever changes that we needed to make in our personal lives, as well as society, we needed to do something externally about it. And then I also realized that the public fool system was another one of their tools. Teach us how to obey, not to evolve. So now, as long as we continue to focus outwardly, we're going to always remain in a state of powerlessness. Because change is made from the inside out, not the outside, not the outside in. As long as we maintain our focus out there on what the Illuminati is doing, what the Bilderbergs are doing, what the Vatican's doing, then you keep yourself in a state of powerlessness, fear, weakness. And that's exactly what they want us to do. That's why you see the advent of all this mass media, you know, iPhones, 3,000 cable channels now, you know, constantly keep you looking out there. So, the only reason why these oppressors, as we call them, or these people that we see that the evil ones, the only reason why they continue to exist is because our energy is feeding them. As long as we continue to focus on them, then they're always going to be here because we're creating them. Because what's out there is just us externalized. So now, if we're running around and we're constantly focusing on the Vatican, the Illuminati, and what they're doing to us, then it's our energy that's constantly creating that. Because if we truly understand natural law, and I learned this from my friend here, we create our own reality. So now, how exactly do we free our minds? What methods do we use? And when I was studying Dr. Brandon's work, I came across something, and to me, when I put it to work in my own life, it helped me face a lot of my inner oppressors to break the chains, and it's called the sentence completion technique. Now, what exactly is the sentence completion technique? The sentence completion technique is a technique whereby one sits down with pen and paper. For those of you who have pen and paper, you could all follow along with this sits down with a pen and paper and writes various sentence stems and then writes responses as quickly as possible without giving any thought to these responses. You don't think, you just write. Okay, for example, I feel powerless when write six to ten endings. Don't think, just write. Because if you think, you, in, you inhibit the process. It's not to be analytical. You're trying to get to that part of you that's creating these outer obstructions. Just write six to ten endings. Sometimes I feel helpless when I, once again, write the stand. 
six to ten Indians or more. I feel fear when I, and for anyone who, for example, if you want to write an ending to one of these sentences, I feel powerless when, be something like, oh, when I'm approached on, when I get pulled over by a police officer, just write. Don't analyze, just write. If I persist in blaming others for my life, If I continue to see myself as a victim, when I think of some of the lies that I've lived by, I'm beginning to see that. And when I feel fear, I, last one, when I feel powerless, I, Now, once again, after writing these sentence things, proceed to write them as rapidly as possible. Don't think, once again, I have to emphasize, don't think, just write. Six to ten minutes or more. Do these exercises every morning and every evening. And I found this to be very powerful. Before you start your day, before you retire in the evening. Do more if you can. You don't have to Stay six to ten minutes because once you begin this process, you're going to find that you open up. And naturally, there's going to be a lot of repetitions. Don't worry about that. Because for many of us, because of the society that we live in, we have a lot of trash to get out, to clean out. Okay, so just take your time. But you'll also find that what will inevitably occur is that new answers begin to come to you. You begin to see where the chains have been put on your mind. You begin to get new insights. And you start to energize your entire time when you do this. First time I did this, I must admit it was very frightening because it helped me face a side of myself that I was taught to growing up in a Christian household, raised by a devoutly Christian grandmother. I had to get a lot of that out of my head. And then at the end of the week, what you do, you go back and you revisit what you wrote from Monday through Friday. And then a sentence then follow up with that is, if any of what I wrote this week is true, it would be helpful if I and just write. Now, doing this work, the idea is to empty your mind of any expectations concerning what will happen or what's supposed to happen. Do not impose any demands on the situation. Try to empty your mind of any expectations or how you should feel or how you should operate. And once you begin to do this, once you begin to do these exercises, you're going to discover that you set in motion forces that make it virtually impossible for you to live more consciously. An average session shouldn't take any more than 10 minutes. If it takes any longer than that, you're thinking too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't sit there and analyze. Okay. 
Now, once again, you do these exercises on a daily basis and you will find yourself becoming more internally oriented than externally oriented. You'll, you'll find yourself becoming more autonomous in your thinking. You're not as affected by CNN, Fox 5, and all the other crap that they feed to us on a daily basis. Now, when I began to do these exercises, you know, I, I got very angry. I also became very fearful because I began to realize that many of the things that were taught to me by family, the public school system, church, the world's all a bunch of lies. But then I realized I can't really blame them because they were only teaching me what they were taught. You know that a lot of this was handed down from generation to generation, so they didn't know any better themselves. But for some reason, I couldn't seem to shake the fear and the anger. You know, and I began to block it out of my mind, thinking that, well, if I maintain this fear and this anger, it's going to inhibit my elevation. Because what organized this sort of doctrine teaches us is to not feel what we feel. Put it behind us. Get thee behind me, Satan. Give it to Jesus. And what I learned from studying the occult, as well as psychology, one of the most powerful things you can do is to feel, to experience your emotions. So now, how do we feel with the various emotions and feelings that arise in us on a daily basis? Just by accepting them. By honoring reality. What do I mean by that? What I'm this is what I'm feeling right now, at the moment that I'm feeling. You breathe into it, rather than tense yourself against it. Because when you tense yourself against it, there's an old saying, bad psychology makes bad biology. These emotions get stored up in our bodies, which then create cancer and any other physical ailments that you can think of. Every physical ailment that you can think of is tied to some repressed or suppressed emotion. I had, to, I had a gentleman on my show not too long ago, and uh, we were talking about cancer. And right about that time, the famous uh, boxer, Joe Frazier, had recently passed away from liver cancer. And when we were talking, when he was teaching us about chakras and how various emotions create various ailments, Joe Frazier died of liver cancer. And liver cancer usually stems from years of repressed anger, unexpressed anger. So when we look around and we see we may have poor eyesight, we may have whatever. They're all tied to unexpressed emotions. And we were taught that. We weren't taught to feel our emotions and our feelings. We were taught to suppress them. But once again, bad psychology makes bad biology. So now in order to keep the energy flowing, because all it is is energy, you must feel what you feel. Breathe into 
your emotions, breathe into your feelings. And that's the only way you're going to be whole. See, organized, distorted doctrine doesn't teach us to be whole. It teaches us just to give it to Jesus, pray to God, and don't think any bad thoughts. <laughs> I also discovered the work of Dr. Connie Fly, who wrote an excellent, excellent book called Romancing the Shadow. I highly recommend everyone get that book. It's about shadow work. Now, it's been, re it's been made commercial recently by Debbie Ford. And Debbie's done great work. I follow her work religiously. But uh, she learned it from the people that taught me, Dr. Connie Zwei, Jeremiah Abrams, you know, and I'm glad to see that this type of information has really come to the forefront. Because I've had people ask me, well, what exactly is shadow work? Shadow work basically is taking a look at that side of us that we have been programmed away from looking at. Let me say that again. Shadow work is a process of looking at that part of ourselves that we have been programmed to ignore. Get behind me, Satan. It's called shadow work, but I like to call it our inner Lucifer, our inner Satan. Well, why do I call it that? When we look at things from a quote, end quote, religious point of view, we were taught that Satan and God are two separate entities. And even as a child, I didn't sit, sat, it didn't sit right with me because I figured, well, if God is the creator of everything and everyone, didn't God create Satan? So wouldn't that make Satan a part of him? And then I began to meditate about this stuff. And I, then I started studying shadow work. And that's when it hit me. Wow, all Satan is, is God's shadow side. He's known as Lucifer, the light bringer. If he's a light bringer and he's bringing the light of knowledge, he can't be that bad of a guy. And if this all-powerful force sought to create it and allow it to continue to exist, can't be as bad as we've been taught. But then I realized, and this was very frightening when this insight came to me, that good and evil are merely man-made concepts. That even when we perceive what is evil, that's God as well. Now we've been taught that when you see something good, when you see something bad, the Columbine shooting, Sandy Hook, the recent bombing in Boston, that was the devil that did that. God would never do a thing like that. Much like many of us think about our government, Oops, did I say that? <laughs> and I realized on a more esoteric level that this God, this all-powerful force, it just didn't want to experience good things. It wanted to experience everything. It wanted to experience giving life. It also wanted to experience what would be like to take a life. And 
said, why not? So you mean to tell me even when I see, if I look at the morning news and I hear that some hurricane just took out an entire town, that that's God as well, you know? So in order for us to become truly whole, we have to look at the inner, our bad side. See, because many of us were programmed and uh, to see ourselves as angelic perfection. That side of ourselves, that side of me that likes to drink, that likes to get high, that likes to do all these things that society claims is not good. We don't have to look at that side of ourselves. Let's just focus on our good, on our good points. Well, I'm here to tell you, when you have that attitude, you keep yourself very fragmented. You're not whole. Of course, you're not experiencing all of you. And what I learned, in opposition to what we've been taught, always seek the light. If you constantly seek the light, once again, you're very fragmented. For the most deepest treasures lie in the dark. And the so-called controllers know that. They want to keep you focused on that angel inside you. Because what does that do? It keeps you passive. So now when we start our gun control campaigns and convince everyone to turn over their arms to us, then that puts them in a state of passivity. And it makes them a little bit easier to control. But see, that just goes to show you the dumbed-down state that they have the masses in. They have people so ignorant that they're actually convincing you to turn over your weapons of self-protection, if you will, to the enemy, to the very people that want to conquer you. Doesn't sound like madness. So now, when we talk about shadow work, when you begin to do shadow work, you face the inner warrior inside of you. Now, once you begin to face that inner warrior inside you, when the forces of oppression come against you, you're not going to be so easy to conquer. And that's the one thing they really want to keep us away from. That's why so many, in so many instances, when we may have uh, confrontations with the quote-unquote authorities, and I hate calling them that, because they're not, they don't have the authority over anyone or anybody. They only have the authority that we give them. No one has the right to have any authority over anyone. But nevertheless, we always tend to cooperate rather than agitate. Why shouldn't we have, why shouldn't we submit to being arrested by some law enforcement official who's working for, I would say, the biggest criminals on the planet? But yet, I also realize that they're also in the state of ignorance as well. They do not realize who they're working for and what they represent. Because they've been programmed to believe that, oh, you're serving your country, you're serving your society. Really? Serving my country and serving my society by 
taking away the rights of my fellow citizens, and I have the right to do that because I have a gun and a badge, and you're just a bullshit civilian. I can smack you around anytime I want to. Okay. So now shadow work brings us in touch with the warrior. And now here again, I obviously want to illuminate another tool of mind control by the controllers. Through interpretation of the scriptures, people have been rendered powerlessness, which leads to passivity. A passive and powerless populace is easy to control, right? I mean, once you have someone in a state of fear, which produces powerlessness, which in then leads to passivity, then even confident. Which leads me to encourage the masses to seek the to seek the darkness. Stay away from the light of Jesus. It's all mind screw. I know I'm going to get in some trouble for that. Because <laughs> that's contrary to whatever to everything we've been taught. Okay, but as a cultist, as a metaphysicians, truth seekers, whistleblowers, I've learned that to put it all in a nutshell, everything that we were told not to do, that's what we should be doing. And everything that we were told to do, that's what we shouldn't be doing. Because everything we were told to do was to be in servitude to them. And everything we were told not to do was to not make them uncomfortable. Don't rock the boat. Don't misbehave. So as I stated earlier, shadow work taught me to open up to my shadow side, my dark side, my inner dark Vader. I guess that's why I sound like it. <laughs> and uh, that's when it really got scary because this takes a challenging level of honesty because we don't want to acknowledge that there's a side of us that's screwed up. That's one of the toughest things for us to do, to focus on our strengths, not our weaknesses. We don't want to focus on our shortcomings. So I didn't begin to really feel whole until I took a, a look at that side of myself. And it all starts with accepting, self-acceptance. How do we look at ourselves? How do we look at that side of ourselves that makes us go, oh, that can't be me. That, that can't be me. That guy that does a kilo of cocaine a week, that drinks gallons of liquor, that can't be me. I don't want to see that side of me. That's the side of you that you need to look at and need to accept that part of yourself. A problem that's not acknowledged and brought to the light cannot be solved. You can't see it because it hasn't been brought to the light. Now when I say self-acceptance, acceptance doesn't mean liking. It has nothing to do with liking. It's just accepting the fact that right now this is me. This is what I'm experiencing at this moment in time. 
So now, if you're sitting there and you may be thinking about someone that made you angry, right now, I'm feeling anger. I'm breathing into it. Accept it. Because when you begin to accept who and what you are, you begin to expand. You begin to truly feel whole. You begin to break the chains. That's the process. The process begins the process of freeing your mind. So when we begin to not just accept our bad parts, but the good parts of us as well, because another mind screw had, that had we've been taught by family, organized, distorted doctrine, and for those of us who attended the public fool system. Don't think too highly of yourself. Be humble. Minimize yourself. Don't maximize yourself. Don't be too proud of your accomplishments. Because if you're too proud of your accomplishments and who and what you are, people will see you as cocky, narcissistic. But when you maximize yourself, when, you when you're proud of who and, who and what you are, of everything that you are, that's operating at a God level. Never let anyone tell you to minimize yourself. Because you know why they're telling you that? They're telling you that because you maximizing yourself makes them uncomfortable. You maximizing yourself may bring up shadow feelings in them. Your success may shed light on their lack of productivity. So now if I'm successful, and I may go around some friends and family who are not as successful as I am, I have to come down to their level because I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. They're not as productive as I am. So in order not to make them feel uncomfortable, in order not to make them jealous, then instead of bringing them up to my level, I'll go down to theirs. You just gave away your power. Anyone that requires you to minimize yourself, not your friend, doesn't give a damn about you. Because they're telling you to remain powerless. To remain in a state of non-productivity. And you're going to find that once you rise, once you begin to undertake this work, naturally, your reality now is going to begin to change. Friends that you may have been, people you may have been friends with for a very long time, all of a sudden you fall out with them. It's inevitable. Not unless they are doing the same things that you're doing family members that you were close to may find that they're gone from your life. And I came across an old saying a long time ago, don't worry about the people in your past. There's a damn good reason why they didn't make it to your present and your future. <laughs> don't cling to them. That's why all the great masters always said, never cling to anything. Because if you cling to something, then you remain there.
So now, as we rise, we have to be willing to risk that what we have now in order to rise. Because what's out there is only a mirror of what's in here. So if you look at your external reality and you're not happy with it, change it. You created it. We have that power. You created it, and you also have the power to change it. So shadow work is definitely, definitely a way to free the mind. That's why I highly recommend the works of Dr. Brandon, Dr. Zweig, Jungian Psychology. You know, I've also studied Neville Goddard, and also recently discovered the works of Bill Donahue on YouTube. I highly recommend it. So when I look around at what's going on in the world today, the recent police abuse on American citizens, gun laws, disarming masses, well see, first of all, before they disarm you physically, they have to disarm you mentally. Let's go back to what I said a few minutes ago about gun control laws. Now they realize that they just can't go up to citizens and say, give me your gun, you can't carry a gun anymore, you can't have any more weapons. No, that would be too barbaric. America is not like that. So we have to do something that's going to create fear. That's going to instill a feeling of powerlessness, which is also going to lead to passivity. So now if we stage a bombing in Boston, oh, our government would never do things like that. But just follow along with me. <laughs> okay. The stage event in Sandy Hook, government would never do that, but I'm just speaking hypothetically. People have to realize that these are merely distractions. This is just part of their tools of mind control. Because they realize that we are dealing with a deaf, dumb, and blind, that we can put the secrets right in front of their face and they will still reject it. We have these people so freaking stupid that they don't realize that we're their enemy. And we're convincing them to turn their arms over to us, which in turn is going to help us conquer them. And that's some mind control for gas. <laughs> So now, how can people not see this? But then I realized they don't know what we know. Many people out there do not know what we know. And the fact that the people we have here shows that people are waking up. The average person out on the street has a feeling that, what can you do? You can't fight city hall. Yeah, I know the United States, I know George Bush was behind 9-11, but what can you do? I would, I would rather continue to believe that it was Osama bin Laden that did it. That's more comfortable. Because if I begin to contemplate the fact that, wow, the guy in the White House who's supposed to be protecting our rights, 
actually kill his own citizens just for some money and power. That's scary. And I don't want to believe that. So what do I do? I run from it. And then what do you do? You minimize yourself. Because you're not allowing yourself to see. You're looking, but you're not seeing. Big difference. You refuse to see what's there. And when you do that, you give away your power. You must be able to not just look, but to see. And even if it's frightening, you have a choice. I see this. Now, do I retreat and continue to remain in an ignorant state? Or do I press forward, even though I'm, I'm scares the shit out of me? Do I press forward? That's the ultimate decision. And unfortunately today, many people, and I, I deal with it every day, what I tell people, what just went on in Boston? White House is behind that. No. Our government would never do that to us. And then I also encounter people, well, yeah, Curtis, I kind of know that there's some monkey business going on, but I don't want to look at that. It's too frightening. The truth is frightening. The truth is empowering. What? What about the truth is there to be afraid of? So now, I also mentioned it, Bill Donahue. And with regard to organized distorted doctrine, I have not seen a gentleman who really brings home what the Bible literally represents. And then I realized that, wow, that's another part of their mind control. Interpret the Bible literally. Don't tell them that the Bible is allegorical and historical. I mean, not historical, metaphorical. Let's convince them to think that it's historical. Let's convince them that there's some nice guy in the sky and the ultimate asshole in the ground. And when you begin to see God and Satan as something outside of you, once again, you just gave away your power. There's no external God or demon outside of you. You are God. You also are Satan. That's part of us that we don't want to look at. The worst thing you can do is to interpret the Bible literally. And then once again, studying the occult, because, and many of us here can relate to that, when you begin to study the occult, first thing that you do is just totally discredit the Bible. Get that religious crap out of here. It's been messing up people's minds. But then as I begin to study, the Bible is the greatest occult book ever written, ever read correctly. 
school of evolution. And I said, well, wow, if I'm studying the occult and I was told that the Bible was a tool of mind control, then how could it be the ultimate occult book ever written? And then I realized it's the misinterpretation of the scriptures. When you look at the Bible, everything in the Bible is talking about you. Moses never existed. Noah's Ark never existed. They are all aspects of your mind. No, Jesus didn't even exist either. Or anyone that you come across in the Bible are not historical figures. They are all aspects of your mind. And when you read the Bible from that mentality, that when you open it from Genesis to Revelations, it's talking about you. It's teaching me who I am and what I am capable of. Then you get a whole new perspective. And then I realize they're hiding the secrets in plain sight. Now let me tell you something about the controllers, and I'm stealing Mark's word. Controllers. <laughs> as sinister as their plan is, they're genius. Because when you come up with a plan that lasts for millions of years, you started your plan in 2 BC, and your plan is still effective in 2013, it's genius. You gotta give them the props. That is genius. And I have a certain admiration and respect for that because they were able to keep people in a state of ignorance for so very long. Now, I was listening to one of Mark's radio shows, and he said something that is probably going to stay with me for a very long time. He broke down the difference between ignorance and ignorance. You know, there's a difference. Ignorance and ignorance. Ignorance is when you genuinely do not know. Everyone who's here right now, because you spent three days here, even if you came here ignorant, you're not going to leave here ignorant. Because after listening to all these great speakers here, believe me, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm just a space filler. <laughs> I'm not that smart. <laughs> I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh Precisely. And I thank you for that. But when you leave here after these three days, you can no longer claim ignorance. Because now you know. Now what is ignorant? Ignorant is someone who doesn't know and doesn't want to know. They're married to their stupidity. See, it's one thing to realize I'm ignorant, but I want to know. No one can blame you for
for being ignorant. But yes, you can be held accountable for being ignorant. Because having the truth right in front of your face and just choosing not to see it, that's the reason why we're in this mess today. Because too many people are like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Curtis. I hear what you're saying, Mark. I hear what you're saying, Mark, and I hear what you're saying, Bob. But I don't want to look at that stuff. It's too frightening. That's ignorance. So keep in mind, you can't be held accountable for being ignorant. But you can be held accountable for being ignorant. Don't allow yourself to be ignorant. I mean, many of us in here are ignorant of something. But you have to strive to learn. So now, when we look at these outside forces, let's not pay so much attention to them. How about we figure out who we are and what we're capable of? That always sitting around worrying, oh, look at what the Illuminati did now. Look at what's going on with the Vatican. Monsanto. They're poisoning the food. They're doing this. They're doing that. Stop focusing on these guys. It's our energy that's continuously feeding them. They need us. And when we pull the plug on these guys, by freeing our minds, whatever they built is going to crumble. Because it's our energy, but when you study the laws of attraction, you realize that I'm creating those guys. So turn away from them. Don't worry about them. Let whatever the whatever the Rothschilds and the Bilderbergs and whatever they're doing out there in Bohemia grow so freaking what? None of those people with all their money, and everything is greater than you. And they got it from us anyway. By keeping us deaf, dumb, and blind. Until now, we're not deaf, dumb, and blind anymore. We're all here at the Free Your Mind Conference. So now, once again, you can no longer claim ignorance. Because you know. So going back to shadow work and how it relates to occult study, when I began to practice this information, like I said, it really grew. And with regard to natural law, because that's what it really focuses on. The studying the occult has taught me some really mind-blowing things. And once again, those of us or those who I perceive to be more powerful than I am, well, how did they get that way? How did they achieve that power? How did they maintain that power? And it's all a mindset. Because when I began to study natural law as opposed to man's law, see, don't study man's laws. Man's laws were designed to keep you in a cage. And when you begin to study universal law, you realize that 
Well, and I've had a lot of debates with this, but the universe really knows no morality. It knows no good and evil. Those are man-made concepts. What we've been programmed to think is bad might be the best, and what we've been programmed to think is good might be the worst. It's a mind screw. And then I realized that those so-called oppressors, they have a totally different mindset than the average guy who's working nine to five every day just trying to feed his family. So now when we look at these people and we call them evil, sinister, the worst jerks in the world, are we judging them from, how can I put this, are we judging them or looking at them from a sense of morality, an erroneous sense of morality that was programmed into us? by those who've been most influential in our lives, organized distorted doctrine, the public fool system. Because if so, then why am I why am I where I am and why are they where they are? It all begins here. Wow, I could stay here all day and talk. And this is very enjoyable. But, wow, I really enjoyed this and we have to get to the next speaker. So once again, how do we free our minds? Shadow work, psychological work. I highly recommend the works of Dr. Nathaniel Brandon, Dr. Connie's wife. You could Google them. Read any and everything that they wrote. These are law principles. That's it. You know, it's like you break them and there are consequences. That's it. People have called this many different things. Karma is one of the big things that it's been called throughout the ages. Okay? So I have a, a slide, image number five on the website today, is uh, natural law, also known as. What, what have people attributed this collection of laws and called it? You know, they've, they've basically given it simp simplifying names in the past. They've called it the law of cause and effect. This is simply one of its principles, but people have attributed so much importance to that one aspect of it that they've simply called natural law cause and effect, okay? Meaning that effect, the manifestation of, of what actually occurs, invariably follows a prime cause, something that set that manifestation into motion, Okay? So effect invariably follows a cause. There must be a cause for there to be effect in manifestation. This has also been said in a scientific way that for every action there exists an equal and opposite reaction. There's a reason for everything. Nothing is by chance. There are no accidents. There are no true coincidences. There are reasons that things are the way that they are. And those reasons can be discovered. It's also been called, natural law has also been called the law of attraction by many people. This is popular in the New Age research community, but uh, it's also a very good way of looking at it, that we attract what we put out into the universe. The universe is an intelligent field, an intelligent interactive field 
through which we experience things, learn, and grow. And what we put into that field is what the field actually becomes and then rearranges and reorganizes itself and then displays back to us. So it's showing us at all times where we are like a gigantic mirror. I said last week, jokingly, I could come on here. You want really quick, um, a real quick lesson and something that doesn't require much unpacking at all. If words, you know, too many words uh, make you nervous. Well, natural law is a gigantic mirror. Good night. That's it. That's what you really need to understand. That's what the intelligent field that's all around us, that we're a part of, not just around us, we're in it. That's what it is. It's a huge mirror. So the energy that you emit, that you put out, is the energy that you attract unto yourself. It's been also said that energy flows where our attention goes. The quality of our attention dictates the quality of our experience. How awake are we? How conscious are we of these laws and their effects? Are we truly taking responsibility, understanding that there are consequences to our behavior, or are we just living unconsciously? See, because these laws are the ways we create the reality around us collectively. It doesn't matter whether we're conscious of them or not. It doesn't matter whether we believe in them or not. They are in operation. We are bound by them. We are creating our experience through our adherence to them or our ignorance of them. Period. The end. The law of attraction has also stated the generative principle of as you think, so you shall be. Showing the knowledge that thought is ultimately the basis for our experience, for any everything that ultimately manifests in this domain. And it's also been called karma or moral law. We'll look at that on the other side of the break and then we'll outline the natural law principles. Talking about natural law and some of the other forms that it is known as, the the terminology that is often used. One of them we were talking about before the break, the law of attraction. And there's this watered-down version of the law of attraction that's popular in the New Age communities, the New Age movement. Uh, that is, I believe, uh, a cul-de-sac for people to wander down aimlessly um, without a real deep understanding of what this true law of attraction really is. And, you know, they appeal to the ego in order to do that, Uh, getting people to think, oh, just you yourself are creating the collective reality. And, you know, uh, the idea to, to... for learning this natural law is rooted in ego because you want things or you want money or you want success, okay? And th- that's completely, uh, you know, in, in worldly s- sense you want success. And that, that is completely the wrong way of looking at the law of attraction. This is a watered-down um, version, variant of this teaching. What the law of attraction is saying when it talks about as you think, so you shall be, they're talking about us collectively, as our consciousness wanes and we don't really understand natural law, and so we're deeply rooted in ego, we are going to form together to co-create a more enslaved society. As our consciousness evolves and opens up and flowers and reaches higher and higher expressions and deeper understandings of natural law and the true rights of humanity and living beings everywhere, well then, so our society will evolve in a similar way and become more and more free. 
That's what this means. It's not, it doesn't mean that I individually, Mark Passio, am creating the manifested universe around me. This is bunk. This is utter nonsense. And anybody that thinks of that as such is delusional and crazy because they think they're God. You're not creating the universe. You're a part of the universe. You're in the universe. Okay? We are collectively, as a species, creating the experience of our shared reality, of the quality of our shared experience here on Earth, by how we think as a species. That's what this means. Okay? So, another variant of the natural law principles is simply karmic law. Simply put, karma, a a Sanskrit word meaning action, okay? Because our behaviors are based upon our thoughts and emotions, and then we ultimately move them into an outward expression or an outward manifestation called our actions or our behavior. And that's what actually creates the reality that we experience. That's why action is so important in this dynamic. It's the most important thing. That's why our actions must be in keeping, in harmony with natural law principles. And if they're not, we create chaos. Or in other words, we reap what we sow. Okay, again, the field of energy, the dynamic, living, creative field of energy that we exist in will restructure and reorganize itself according to the laws that it was created through to give us the experience that we have chosen and we fully deserve based on how we think, feel, and act. It's, it's actually quite simple. It's almost laughable. You could put it in such simple terms. Do good things. Good things will happen. Your quality of your experience will be good. Do bad things. Bad things will happen and the ultimate quality of your experience will be bad. It's so simple, it's laughable. And people complicate it and want to make it into something that it's not. But ultimately, that's how natural law works at the very easiest first grade level of understanding it. Very simple. Not complex, really. Easy from our current mind-controlled conditions to understand and live in harmony with? No, not easy. Simple, yes. Easy is a whole different ball game. Where we've the corner we've worked ourselves into right now that we've painted ourselves into, I'd say the understanding and living in harmony with natural law may be quite hard or difficult. It may require a lot of courage we're considering where we're at collectively as a species right now. And ultimately, natural law can be summed up in another very brilliant synthesis, which a master teacher, in a way that a master teacher put it, and this is do unto others as you would have done unto yourself, or what is simply known as the golden rule. And because that is the path to higher consciousness, that way of living in the world, of being in the world, is the path to alchemical spiritual gold. That's, that's all of the riches that we ever need or could ever want in the spiritual kingdom. Okay, You will have gold if that's how you live. That's why it's called the golden rule. The principle of mentalism. We've already begun talking about this a little here today. That our thoughts are the essence of our experience. The foundational basis, the creative essence, or what in different 
mystery school traditions has been referred to as the generative principle, our thoughts in combination with our emotions. These are the unseen qualities that go on within the individual, what we think and how we feel, combined form the womb for the creative experience of the manifested reality that we all share. Because that's what we're basing the child, the child aspect of consciousness, the male child actions or behavior, the thing that we actually do in the world, the external um, solar masculine force that we exert into the actual field of energy in which we are living and that's what ultimately becomes the experience collectively okay so the thoughts are of primary importance that doesn't mean we should downplay behavior that we should downplay feeling these are all part of it there are they shall be given equal importance but the the emanation if you will the actual essence of that expression comes from the thoughts okay this is why the egyptian god thoth okay he was named after thought that's his name okay he is the one of the creator gods or the scribe of the creator gods actually okay he is bringing the understanding of natural law in through the mind and this principle is not just about how our thoughts in human form create the, the shared reality that we experience at a fundamental level, but it's about how the entire universe is a mental construct. It is indeed the thoughts of the mind of the creator itself. The creative force had to have a thought in order for this construct that we call three-dimensional space-time reality to exist. And then express that through the third principle, the principle of vibration, speaking the universe into existence. Vibratory energy came into being, but there had to be a thought, a prime causal factor before that occurred. Consciousness itself pre-exists everything that is of form. That's the principle of mentalism. The mind is all, consciousness is all. There was a deep depression in this land. Many of you are too young to remember it, but I am almost now 67. And I went through the deep depression back in New York City. I was a dancer. And who would pay a dancer when they couldn't eat? All the theaters were closed. I don't think more than three theaters out of 50 were open in Times Square. So who wanted the dancer? I would have danced for anything, for a meal. And no one wanted to pay a dancer. So what would I do? I wanted to go to my little island called Barbados. And I had no money. But I've been said no money. I mean no money. Not just a little bit, but none. I said to my friend, Abdullah, Ab, I would love to go to Barbados. He said to me, you are in Barbados. I said, I am in Barbados. 
He said, yes, you are now in Barbados. I didn't quite understand what he was telling me. I learned it afterwards. He was telling me that if I want something, I must now, at that moment that I want it, assume that I have it. I want to go to Barbados. I am in Barbados. So this night when I sleep, I sleep in Barbados. How? In my imagination. And how do I know I'm there? Think of New York City where physically I'm sleeping. And see it to my north, 2,000 miles. Northwest of where I am in Barbados. Well, the months went by and I didn't see any evidence. I said to him, you know, Ab, if I don't make the next boat out, well, no planes were flying, no commercial planes were flying in those days, I can't go to Barbados. He said to me, who said you are going to Barbados? You are in Barbados. You can't discuss how you're going to Barbados when you are already in Barbados. Then he walked straight to his room and slammed the door in my face, which was not an invitation to follow him. If you knew him, that's how he taught me. I am asleep as though I am in Barbados. And when I went to bed, though in New York City, I had assumed that I am actually in Barbados and see New York City, not under me, but to the north of me, 2,000 miles. And I woke within 48 hours after that moment with my ab, and under my door was a letter from my brother Victor. And in that letter, he enclosed a small little draft, $50. He said, I have told the steamship company, the Furnace Whitty Company, to issue you a ticket and charge it to me. The $50 is simply if you want some little thing, like a suit of clothes. In those days, you could buy a suit for $12, a fairly decent suit. You could buy a pair of shoes for $350 or 4 But he said the $50 just for anything you may need to get aboard the ship. But sign the chits, and I'll meet the ship and pay all expenses, and I will pay all the tips. So it's not for tips aboard the ship. I went down to the place and I told them what my letter said. I read, read my letter to them. They said, Mr. Goller, we only have steerage from now on. But when we get to St. Thomas, the Virgin Islands, you may have first class because someone disembarks in St. Thomas. I accepted it. I went back to my friend Abdullah and I told him, Ab, it worked. I'm going on the 6th of December but I have to go steerage until we hit St. Thomas and then we go first class to Barbados. You know what he said to me? He said, who is talking of going to Barbados? You have gone to Barbados and you went first class. Well, what are you going to do with a man like that? I went straight to the boat on the morning of the 6th expecting that I would go steerage to, uh, to the Virgin Islands when the man said to me, Mr. Goddard, we have a nice surprise for you. We had a cancellation and so now you're going first class. He wasn't surprised. I wouldn't even call him to tell him because he was not given that way. He was trying to teach me a lesson. 
You believe in God, believe in me also. Well, the one speaking is God. It's the God in you, your own wonderful human imagination. If you say, I believe in God, everyone here believes in God, but do you believe in your own wonderful human imagination as God? If the word God conveys the sense of an existent something outside of you, you have the wrong God. Because you are the temple of the living God. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Test yourselves and see. Do you not believe that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. Well, if he is in me, find out who he is and where he is. Well, I have found him to be my own wonderful human imagination. That's the God in me. It's the God in you. And may I tell you, he cannot fail. He will not fail. But here on this level, we are the operant power when it comes to the law. When it comes to the promise, that is coming regardless of the life we live in this world. Whether I be rich or poor, be the judge or the one being judged, the murderer or the victim, regardless of what part I play in this world, the promise is not conditioned. It is unconditioned. God promised to redeem himself when he became man. So my fitness for the kingdom of God is not the condition when I'm making myself good. It is the consequence, not the condition of his choice when he called me into the kingdom. So let no one frighten you that you're doing things that's going to stop you from entering the kingdom. It is not conditioned by anything you do in this world. The only condition is on the law. I can say that if I go in a certain direction, I will not encounter certain things. If I dare to assume that I am what I want to be, and I am faithful to that assumption, it will come to pass. If I am not faithful to it, it will not come to pass. If I don't assume that I am it, it will not come to pass. So I am the offering power when it comes to the law. But when it comes to the promise, that is coming regardless of what you do or where you are or anything in this world. Everyone will be redeemed. But everyone. But here when it comes to the law, spend all your time while you are here, because the other is working, it's coming, so while you are here, take the law and try to understand it and try to apply it wisely. Why not live well? Why not live graciously? Why not be a kind person, a generous person in the world? Why not be a gentleman? Why not be a lady? These are tremendous accomplishments for man and for a woman in this world. So I say to everyone, while you are here, find out what the law is all about. Because you can't deceive yourself, because the law will not allow you to. As you reap the things in this world, you may, not deny, you may deny that you planted them. But it couldn't happen by accident. So be not deceived, God is not mocked. For as a man sows, so shall he reap. And he's reaping everything morning, noon and night. I may not remember my sowing and deny the harvest that is mine. But it's there, and I've got to accept it. Let me now 
try to remember when did I plant this. Maybe I can't bring it back. We have very short and faulty memories. And I can't quite remember when I planted that seed. Why the morning's paper, as you read these horrible stories, would tell you when you planted it. You do not know the characters spoken of in the paper, yet you react. And that reaction was in itself the planting of a seed. You pass judgment on those that you read about. You read the gossip of the paper and you're passing judgment. And all of your imaginal reactions are planting seeds. Instead of spending your wonderful time on investing it by, say, reading the Bible or reading a poem, read something that is altogether lovely, you spend our time on the paper or the radio bulletin or the TV. And all day long we're simply putting into our mind ideas that must come to harvest. And when they come, we deny that we planted them. But here, on this principle of the law, you can be what you want to be in this world. I don't care what the world will tell you. You can start from scratch. And if you dare to assume that you are wanted in this world, you will be wanted. I am not a member of any club in the land. And yet, here, I am an American citizen today by adoption. And yet, wonderful men and women in this land have never been allowed to enter certain clubs. I'm speaking of clubs I know well back in New York City. And yet, I, a stranger, have gone as an honored guest to almost every one of them. Because I never barred myself. It never occurred to me that I didn't have all the qualifications to enter as a guest. I have no desire to become a member. None. Yet I have gone to all of these clubs as a guest of those who were members. They came to my meeting and asked me for dinner and they took me to the club or asked me for some other purpose to go to the club. So not a thing in me allowed me to be barred because I didn't bar myself. You can go any place in this world if you don't put these barriers on yourself. It's entirely up to you. God in you is your own wonderful being called your human imagination. In the four weeks that I'm gone, practice it morning, noon, and night. And long before the four weeks, you should show the fruit. I'm serious about it. You should bear the fruit of planting now. Not everything takes a month. Not everything takes a year to grow. Some things come up overnight. And you can plant it now, this very moment, by daring to believe that you are what at the moment reason denies and your senses deny. And actually feel it. Give it the tones of reality. And then drop it. You don't pick it up tomorrow morning to see if it's growing. You accept it. And in its own good time, it comes to fruition in your world. That is the law. Damn, nearly four hours in and you're still here? You are so fucking amazing. Thank you. 
to reward any of you out there that are interested, send an email to wakinglifepodcast at gmail.com. Put I am an infinite being in the subject. I'll send you a preview of the newest song I just recorded. And I'll send you the file to print out your own Waking Life podcast bookmark. Or if you want the physical copy already made for you, just give me your address and we'll figure something out. Now it's time for the outro. Make of it whatever you wish. Take care. The world is made of words. And that if you know the words that the world is made of, you can make of it whatever you wish. My obsessive, eclectic perspective mixed with an articulate, philosophic expression based on research in the halls of the Akashic Records makes me so objective you think my ideas are subjective or pretentious without the knowledge of the trivium for your mental defenses. The quadrivium relates number to your senses so you can see the Pythagorean theorem in its existence. Three laws of learning to guide you through four essential subjects while using five senses equates to the first of Pythagoras' triplets. Proof you should be well versed in arithmetic and geometry. Music and cosmology round out the seven liberal arts, but to see you'll need the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom of the first three. Through grammar, logic, and rhetoric, I can spot thoughts that are phantasmagoric and seek truths that are occulted through lies that are universally categoric. Universities deceive youths for a century, this shit is abhorrent. I see psilocybin, savory, sweet, soft symphonies, and telepathically torrent. Which is to say, when I meditate, tripping balls, synesthesia becomes rationally important. Informing the performer the world's not a stage, this isn't a performance. There's a universe in our minds barely explored, so go explore it! The universe is inside our heads, our head is outside the universe. That's gotta be inside my head or I wouldn't be aware of it. I've got a model of it inside my head. Now inside that model of the studio is a model of me. And on top of the model of me is a model of my head. But that's not my real head. My real head contains the studio and my body into this model of a head. And it's the same with the whole universe. The, the whole universe is a model contained in my head, which contains a model of my head. So I've got two heads, the head outside the universe and the head inside the universe.